This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, along with Cole and Terry. Jeff is on vacation, chauffeuring his family to the great California. And, uh, you know, here we sit, more sexual allegations, uh, one by one, you know, big names coming out. And uh, now Charlie Rose uh, has been suspended. In fact, uh, they made an announcement today they don't believe he'll be back, is what they were saying on the set. Yeah, it's bad. It's bad. There, I mean, it's it's not just he made a comment or did things. The the if you want the details are no, yeah, I don't want them. They're bad, and and yeah, there's no way he's coming back. It, I mean, you, you I guess there's a way if you well, just want to ignore it all, but they're not going to do that. So again, this it, especially it, on the CBS Morning Show, he works with two women. Yeah, and they both sat there today like this is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, we're we, not giving him a pass. No, this is this is bad. And so he probably won't be back. And on honestly, the, again, hopefully we're starting a, a real discussion about this instead of. But it seems like what we're getting are more headlines than a discussion. It yeah. seems like there's a new headline every day. Everyone's in disbelief. But we somehow have to say, how do we stop this? How do we how do we how do we become grownups and treat people with respect? Glenn Thrush, he's a writer for yeah. The New York Times, covers the White House. He's now been suspended Trouble. over these types of situations. He has a book coming out yeah. that's in kind of suspended animation at the moment as they yeah, try to figure out what they're supposed to and do. The New York Times brought uh, Glenn Thrush on because of some of his work at Vox, right? Isn't that oh, no, how he at, got at in? At Politico. Oh, at Politico. Yeah, and yeah. Vox, Vox is the one that reported on it because one of the reporters at Vox is oh. one of the victims of oh, the, wow. the Glenn Thrush <laughs> Think of how Harassed, many though so. these are these are interns these are media people these are Wash- these are the staffers of Washington Washington elites right. I mean these are a lot of people that their dream their goal was to get to DC or get to New York and then all of a sudden they get there and they're young and they're taken advantage of right because they're in a position where they'll do they'll they'll do things to yeah. get to get ahead and this you know they offer is oh. They take advantage of that that uh, excitement to be there and do that job. So. Well, and then you'd think that um, that then the White House comments on stuff like they're commenting on Franken, and not on but then Roy Moore. Well, not on Roy Moore, and now it's like, well, yeah, we kind of need Roy Moore to get elected to pass our legislation, yeah. and yet everyone's like, so would you rather have the legislation or would you rather have Roy Moore and? They don't want to necessarily answer that. Yeah. And I guess on top of it all, uh, what's the difference between what President uh, Trump said, a question was asked, and an Al Franken? And uh, what's her name? Huckabee said, well, Al Franken admitted <laughs> he did it. The president hasn't admitted he's done anything wrong. Right. I mean, he said it. It's on It's on tape. But, Everybody saw it, but he had admitted he didn't. He didn't admit wrong. he said anything wrong. And anybody that knows him knows that that's not what he's really like. Who the president? Yeah, but he said it. Right. So it's it's a really complicated situation. But everyone wants to talk about past presidents, mm-hmm. but nobody wants to talk about current presidents. No. Yeah. Absolutely not. Why would you want to do that? 
It is, isn't this the craziest world we live in? The po- and it's politics. This is, this is how you do it. Right. And one of the things, uh, was it uh, 58, what's it called? Um, Silver's group? Is Three, uh, 358? 358. 538? 538? Yeah, 538. It's a bunch of numbers. 538, because it's yeah. the number of congressmen, oh. or the number of people in the House. Well, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. 648, then. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. 538, but th- they were saying, uh, in, for example, in Alabama, it's a lot less about values mm-hmm. and a lot more about policy. Yes. So not even Alabama. The character voters, supposedly, of our country, the ones that vote for, like, I guess they're saying the religious right, are really more about policy than virtue. Mm-hmm even in their voting approach. It's not necessarily the individual and what they stand for. It's how they will vote. Wow. So you look at the governor of Alabama. Yeah, the governor. She is in a state where there's what they said it's about. The number I saw this morning is about 50% evangelical. Oh, yeah. And so she's that's her voting base. And her response was, I, uh, I have no reason to, dis, uh, what, to disbelieve what the women said, but I'm still going to vote for Roy Moore because he's going to vote the way I need him to. Yeah. I want him to vote on the Supreme Court this way, on you know, judicial appointments this way. He's going to vote on laws a way. Even though his cho- choices ah. and, and you know, these allegations are there, I'm still going to – he's going to vote the right way. Well, so, so what happens to a country that no longer votes for character – but votes for policy. Aren't we there? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> What's the long-term impact of that? I'm not sure. It, it can't be good. No, because you start everyone just starts justifying behavior. Yeah, and it can't be good for, for it, it can't be good for character, right? So no. eventually, well, yeah, but we got this one initiative passed. Oh, sure, other things are going on that are falling around this, but yeah. in fact, many are even questioning now the character of the president when it comes to Haiti. Mhm. 2010, a major earthquake destroys Haiti, basically. So we allow Haitians to come, about 60,000 to come into the country. They can work here. They can, they can live here. They, I guess they get the documentation to do that. President Trump is now going to rescind that offer, basically. As of 2019, they all got to go. Well, it was temporary. Yeah. Yeah. So he's – but with the assumption it would become permanent probably, right? I don't know. Well, like – how are you going to send 60,000 people back to a place a big boat. that doesn't exist anymore, right? Yeah. So now everyone's thinking, what? Yeah. How do you send 6 I mean, how do you send 60,000 people back? They just had a hurricane. You ain't getting back there. This is no jobs, there's no This isn't a time for human compassion and emotion that. This yeah. is a time for the rule of law. It's just ah. Uh, <laughs> we got to remember that, you know, turnabout is fair play. This will all come back. Karma, goodness, yeah. you reap what you sow, it's all going to come back. It's all going to come back. You send 60,000 people back to Haiti, there's nothing in Haiti. What, do they just get off the ship and just stand there at the port? Nowhere to go. Bootstraps, man. Mm. Bootstraps. Wow, what's happening? Okay, let's get to the headlines. Maybe there's happier news somewhere in the headlines. Eh, Terry, what's going on? President Trump has reinstated North Korea as a state sponsor of terrorism in an effort to crack down on Kim Jong-un's nuclear program, the New York Times reports. Former President George W. Bush removed North Korea from the list in 2008 while attempting to negotiate a... uh, nuclear deal. The nation was the fir- was first listed in 1988. North Korea joins a list of state sponsors of terrorism that includes Sudan, 
Syria and Iran. Uh, they said the justification was because there was a uh, the there was the assassination of uh, Kim Jong Un's stepbrother at an airport, and they said because they they oh. they, they stepped out oh, yeah. for this assassination, even though North <laughs> Korea does not confirm that that was the the stepbrother. No, no. But they're saying because they did that a couple years ago that now they're, they're state sponsor of terrorism. Well, even though they haven't done anything outside the country other than that that you can point to. Yeah, that's the justification. for Well, it. but I mean, terror, it, terror is just simply shooting missiles that could have nuclear warheads. Right, there's that into the China Sea. But they didn't mention that in okay. the actual. Oh, they didn't. Yeah, they just mentioned. Okay, uh, you know the yeah. documentation. It's a lot on this. of paperwork. It, it's 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 to allow for further sanctions to be placed okay. under North Korea. Sure. The Justice Department preparing an antitrust lawsuit against AT and T over the company's proposed merger with Time Warner. Bloomberg reports Monday, the Trump administration had previously shown potential intent to block the eighty-five point four billion dollar merger. Over Time Warner's ownership of CNN, a news outlet, mm. Trump routinely accused of unfair coverage of his presidency. The DOJ's antitrust division reportedly threatened the, uh, the merger, asking AT&T to sell CNN's parent company or face federal action. David Rothkopf, a journalism professor at Columbia University, yeah. on Twitter he goes, So the FCC gets rid of cross-ownership rules permitting concentration of media power. So the FCC has walked back some rules that dictate you know, what groups can own, how many radio stations, newspapers, right. TVs in certain markets. The, the idea of that was they didn't want to have any concentration of, of power in one yeah. media market. Well, they're getting rid of that so companies can buy more TV sure. more, all in the same market. You can own like every TV station. You can you own the to. market. So they do that. And then he says net neutrality rules that will give the edge to the big guys, right? So those rules yeah. are actually up for vote today, I believe. They're, they're talking about oh, wow. maybe beginning the process of rolling back net neutrality. Huh. So your your internet provider could like YouTube over Netflix. And so if you want to watch YouTube, they go, well, maybe we like Netflix more, so we're just going to throttle YouTube so it's slower making you watch Netflix. And, and move then, you to the other system. Right, and so they can kind of dictate what services work better uh. instead of just letting everything work better. So that's kind of the idea there. You know what? Don't that, See, that is the one thing you can't mess with. <laughs> right. You can mess with our country. You can mess with our taxes. Don't mess with our... Don't mess with Netflix. Don't mess with Netflix. So those two things are going on. He goes, and now they're arguing it opposes the AT&T Time Warner... Because it will result in concentration of power, huh? Right. So they already were, they already got rid yeah. of the rules that that limit concentration of power. But the problem with the AT and T Time Warner is, well, there's concentration of power. Or is it really just CNN? That's the question. That's in fact, they asked the CEO of AT and T that is this really, or was it Time Warner? Is this really just it's about AT&T. CNN? And he's like, Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> He's like, I'm not going to say. Yeah. So they're going to go to court. We'll see how that goes. Eight women, as we talked about, uh, accuse, the Washington Post reports accused longtime TV host Charlie Rose of sexually harassing them. Those women ranged from ages 21 to 37 at the time of the alleged incidents. Um, they had said they had not previously come forward out of fear of being shut out. That's a big question in yeah. all of these situations is why haven't, why have they waited so long? Well, are you why, kidding why, me? why are they waiting 30 years Who would to come they tell forward? Well, 30 years ago. Yes, by the way, what they do do is they, they tell family. They do. Like Al Franken's second accuser told her family immediately. So that's – but who do you tell? You, well, the uh, Like these eight women came forward and they said strength in numbers. Yeah. That was the reason. There's other people were not alone. Yesterday, one of the accusers of Roy Moore was on the Today Show and she said the reason she came forward was because she started seeing these other women come forward. 
strengths and numbers, numbers, right? So you're not alone trying to point at someone in a position of power and say, yeah. this happened to me. Well, and it was 30 years ago, some of these, right? So yeah. 30 years ago is a different day than today. 20 years ago was a different day. So all of a sudden, it's 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 wholly, it's always been inappropriate. But now everyone's talking about it, bringing up how inappropriate it is, and it's a different day and age. How we handled President Clinton is totally different than how we would handle it today. So Charlie Rose has been suspended from the CBS morning show. Also, PBS, which distributes his talk show, his interview show, announced it will be suspending the program pending the investigation there. New York Times correspondent Glenn Thrush made unwanted advances on several young journalists. He's also been suspended as the New York Times investigates his situation there. The Trump administration cannot restrict grants to so-called sanctuary cities, a federal judge in California's Northern District ruled Monday. Previously, the Trump administration issued an executive order blocking federal grants to cities that did not cooperate with immigration officials. The California court declared the order unconstitutional on its face and issued a permanent injunction against it. Ooh. So... No way. President Trump is now back in the courts. His uh, Justice Department is back in the courts for some of these decisions. So we'll see. Mm. Part of that is you withholding the money also withholds money from like anti-terror operations by local police departments. And that's where it turns into some some issues when it comes to the law on what you can and can't withhold because of other. You know what I mean? You can't connect funding for terrorism versus other other issues because you don't like what they're doing. So and finally, we had this last uh, a couple weeks ago. Rand Paul's neighbor runs over, tackles him as he's on his riding lawnmower. Why did he do it? Why? Why? What was the motivation for attacking a senator on his riding lawnmower? What did Rand do to you? What did he do? So it's been 18 days since that happened. Oh, wow. Rand Paul's back to work. Boy, his ribs still killed. He had five broken ribs. So what, what, you you tape those up Mm. and just kind of breathe lightly and go to work? Um, So GQ magazine. Yeah. The, the bastion of truth. Oh, yeah. That I was is reading GQ. it this morning. They uh, went down to Kentucky and wandered around the neighborhood talking to neighbors to find out the truth oh. about what happened. Because oh. you're not going to get this no, out yeah, of the, the news. neighbors know the dirt. They know. So right. I don't know how you get people to talk. You just ask them questions. Do you? Do you yeah. think they're pretty willing to, oh, to go off yeah. on this? Neighbors I think it that. starts off by saying, hi, I'm from GQ. Oh, really? That just opens all That's the... That's it? Do you like my sweater? I think I would go, uh, go away. Don't cause problems in my neighborhood. So it's a gated community in Kentucky. Right, everyone's yeah. got these beautiful yards. Every, everyone's out there taking care of things. The uh, the neighbor, his name was Rene Borcher. Mm. Borcher. Uh, so, Rand Paul reportedly sustained five broken ribs. What prompted Borcher's attack is unclear. If you ask the neighbors, they'll tell you it was a landscaping dispute. Although Paul himself says his libertarian politics provoked his socialist neighbor. Wow. Yeah. So it says the real story, though, might be much shorter than that. Like most everyone else in River Green Development, Bowling Green resident uh, Bill Goodwin told the reporter that they the most residents pay in the ballpark of 150 a month for professional landscaping. Okay. 150 bucks a month for landscaping. Yeah. yeah. While Paul ins- Rand Paul insists on maintaining his yard himself. Yeah. Goodwin, the neighbor, said that uh, that's part of what nagged uh, the bo- the attacker, Borcher, was that the difference in gra- grass length between his lawn and that of his libertarian neighbor. He had his yard sitting at a beautiful two and a half inches, three inches thick, while Rand cuts it to the nub, as the neighbor <laughs> says. 
His is a putting green. Goodwin also told GQ that Borchere was infuriated by Paul's tendency to mow outward at the edge of his property, spraying his clippings into Borchere's yard. So it's uh. grass length and the clippings spraying into his yard. Because grass clippings, yeah. oh, they're horrible. They're everywhere. So then you're charged with a uh, f- uh, felony. Because you attacked a senator. And even more than maybe – more felon, more than one felony because, yeah, it's a senator and it's – it was such – it was so aggressive. So that... over grass clippings, you get an FBI investigation. Yeah. Good job. Not good. <laughs> That's not so smart. What do you – what do you tell the – hey, he's cross-cutting. He's cross-cutting the yard. <laughs> And he cuts his grass to the nubs. To the nub, it says. So, yeah, he's got a putting green where the other guy has a nice, healthy, green, lush, lush lawn. And you got this putting green next door. That would tick me off. Wow. I don't think it would matter. And and he's just mowing. He didn't have any clue. And then out of nowhere, he gets T-boned. Wow. Hmm. What's wrong with America? You can't even. It's his socialist neighbor, as Rand Paul said. <laughs> hey, we haven't mentioned this, but uh, we probably need to. Uh, oh. uh, country music legend Mel Tillis died. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember him? Mm-hmm. I mean, that was my childhood. He was 85 years old. Uh, Tillis died in Monroe Regional Medical Center after battling intestinal issues. Uh, Till, uh, Tillis was a prolific songwriter who penned more than 1,000 songs, recorded more than 60 albums. His career spanned 60 decades. That's pretty amazing. Some of his songs, uh, Good Women Blues, Heart Healer, Coca-Cola Cowboy. In 2007, he was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. By the way, didn't he have like a like a speech impediment too? Like he had a bit uh, of a stutter. Yeah. yeah. What a guy. So all of this, I mean, you, you have a stutter your entire life growing up, and then you come out and you are inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame and you produce more than 1,000 songs. Are you kidding me? That's pretty cool. And just a good guy. Seemed like an all-around good guy. Liked to go fishing. Liked to hang out with his friends. Anyway, a little, uh, a little uh, on our way out, uh, as we get ready to, to bring on our next guest, we'll uh, do a little tribute to Mel Tillis. Uh, next up is going to be uh, Cynthia Meyer. She's going to be talking about TV's shifting landscape, how advertisers are scrambling to adapt uh, to the new advertising model. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to BYU Radio. You say you're tired and alone But it sounds like someone else is lying Welcome back, friends. You know, today you can't get away from commercials. Whether you're trying to watch a YouTube video or just surfing Facebook, they're everywhere. But today's advertisements are not the same uh, type of advertisements as your parents may have seen. You know, it is branded content. Here to speak with us today about branded content is Dr. Cynthia Myers, a professor of communications at the College of Mount St. Vincent in New York City. Cynthia, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, thanks for having me. You know, it's it is amazing. Um I remember sitting back in the days of Mutual of Omaha, um uh what was it? Like their their old uh safari shows where you'd go watch people driving on a Jeep around the Serengeti or whatever. And totally sponsored by Mutual of Omaha. I had this warm affinity for Mutual of Omaha. And in a weird way, we've we've kind of we moved away from that to then regular just, you know, 30-second commercials. But it sound, it feels like 
we are kind of moving back to branding like that. Yes, absolutely. Um, that idea of integrating the brand uh, with the program actually started in the 1920s. Um, early radio advertisers put on like music shows, right? Like, with perky music, if they were selling pop, um, you know, like soda pop, um, and then that became the established. Um, way of financing radio and television content up through the 1950s, where a brand would sponsor the program. So it would be Kraft Music Hall or Kraft Television Theater. And the whole idea was that they were bringing you entertainment that you would like, and therefore you you would have goodwill towards them, or you would feel positively towards the brand. Um, And so they were just sort of hoping that your enjoyment would rub off into your actual purchasing behavior. Um, and so that doesn't change until the 1960s. And then in the 60s, what I guess they started figuring out, hey, we might be able to make more money by just having a commercial, you know, every 30 seconds. Yes. And in fact, part of what happens in the 1960s is no longer is it financially viable for one advertiser to pay for and sponsor an entire television show because they were much more expensive than than the radio shows were. But also the advertisers realized that they could reach a lot more people if they advertised on multiple shows instead mm. of just sponsoring one show. And then they also realized that they ran um, a lower risk of being negatively associated with something that audiences didn't like. So, um, you know, one of the problems that happened in the 1950s was um, some anti-communist activists threatened to boycott um, companies like Kraft. Um, if they had actors on their program that had the wrong kind of political affiliations or beliefs. Oh, wow, really? And so blacklisting in part came out of this concern that they didn't want to be associated uh, with certain political um, beliefs, and therefore they had to not hire certain people to be in the show. And that's because the advertiser was entirely responsible for the content. Hmm. Um, And this was a problem. This was a problem for the advertisers. It was a problem for the audiences. Uh, it's a problem for everybody. And so when we separate the ads from the content, then the advertisers don't have as much um, <clears throat> as much responsibility for the content. And then they're just choosing what content to advertise on, and they're not directly controlling it. And so in the 1960s, that was really seen as a reform, right? Uh, yeah. You, you know, that the networks then would be responsible responsible for bringing programs to audiences and the networks would be responsible for finding and choosing the right programs. And then the advertisers, all they had to do was identify which audience they wanted to target through which program. Um, And then that was the system that was really in place and is still in place um, today in broadcast networking. It's interesting. Um, And then recently we heard, you know, many, uh, some of the the sponsors, not sponsored, but some of the people paying for advertising, advertisers on like the Sean Hannity show were starting to pull mm-hmm. their their sponsorship or, or advertising from Hannity show. Uh, many people have cried for boycotts uh, of advertisers. It, it, it really it's it's interesting. It, it's a different game than it was in the 60s because the advertisers aren't creating or the companies aren't creating the content. But still, it's it's almost like death by, you know, association. Yeah, and and so, you know, one of the interesting things to me is that in print media, um, the text of the of the editorial content has always been very distinct from the ads, right? And right. when you read a magazine, you know what is editorial and what is ad. Um, and there are all sorts of 
you know, all sorts of ways that you can tell. Um, and so, and, and that material comes from different sources, right? For a magazine, the editorial is produced by the staff of the magazine, and the ads are produced by the staff of ad agencies. Um, and so that sort of separation actually sort of helps build the credibility of both forms of content, um, right? So the, the magazine had this editorial integrity um, in a right. sense. Um, however, um, having said that, um, the magazine was still designed to um, attract a certain audience for their advertisers. So um, Glamour magazine is going to um, write articles that are going to um, attract audiences that, say, cosmetics companies are going to want to advertise to, but they're not going to write articles that might, you know, undermine the cosmetics industry, for example. Mm-hmm. So there's always been um, a relationship between the content and the ad, um, and that's true in television as well. And that relationship is always there. It's just that it wasn't um, as direct or obvious um, as when the advertiser owns the content. Yeah, and well, and now too, you'll do. Uh, like in radio, we'll do a read for an ad where I'm actually voicing live my my appreciation of a product. And by me voicing live my appreciation of the product, I guess I've brought the product really close to a personality. And if people don't like the personality, then it's easier to boycott the product. Yes. And actually, in early radio, um, the announcer giving the commercial – um, was just seen as really, really important because they were bringing the ad through that personality that, that audiences liked, right. that audiences like to listen to. In fact, um, I wrote a book called A Word From Our Sponsor, and I have this whole section on announcers being the typefaces of radio. That is, hmm. the way the announcer delivers um, or the host delivers the ad is part of what makes it effective because the audience is tuning in because they want to listen to that host or that announcer, and that personalizes the message in a way that, um, you know, a print ad is just not as personal. Right. And so radio and podcasting, um, <clears throat> when they use the host of the program to also deliver the message, it's it's the, the advertiser's sort of way of appealing to that audience by connecting the product, you know, to the person they like to listen to. Is Are things, I mean, it seems like they're changing. You know, radio doesn't seem to be... The powerhouse that it used to be now online is is really advanced, but they they seem to be using kind of some of the good old fashioned techniques. What changes do you see are going on for advertisers, and where is their money moving? If it if it moved from radio to TV back in the fifties, sixties, seventies, where's it moving? Is it moving from TV to online now? Yes, I think it is absolutely. But um, there's several things that are going on. Um, The first thing is that a lot of advertisers are concerned that um, interrupting ads of any kind are ineffective, right? So um, when you're watching a TV show and you're interrupted by a commercial, um, in the past, you really had no choice. You had to sit and wait through the commercial in order to get to the program. And that kind of forced exposure um, was accepted in the industry because that was the way they reached you. Um, but today, audiences are more mobile and they have more options and they can avoid those interrupting ads. And so advertisers today are moving towards branded content, which is essentially content. So if you define content as, as material that audiences want to consume and ads as material that audiences don't want to consume, but the brand wants you to consume, branded content 
is content that the advertiser is hoping the audience wants to consume because it looks like content, but also mm. still has the advertiser's message. And so you have more sponsorship is coming back, um, and you have more product placement that is, you know, the appearance of brands in in the sets of TV shows and movies. You have more brand integrations, which is when the brand becomes part of the story. So um, in the middle of a Hawaii Five-0 episode, they were eating Subway sandwiches and talking <laughs> about it. Um, wow. So they're all, they're all those strategies. And then a lot of advertisers today are actually producing their own content. So they're either um, producing it themselves in-house or they're hiring different companies. So, for example, Red Bull, which is um, an energy drink, um, they don't put commercials on TV anymore. Um, Their target market, young men, young people who are interested in exciting things, they now have a YouTube channel where you can watch, you know, mountain bikers, you know, bike down the sides of cliffs. Right. And that's the content that those young people want to watch. Um, and that's the content that interests those young people. And then, you know, the Red Bull logos and the Red Bull shirts. And every once in a while, somebody's drinking a Red Bull. But it's not a commercial in the sense that you're being interrupted with a message about how great Red Bull is. Um, but it's branded content in that you're consuming content that is designed to get your attention and also designed to get you to feel positively about the brand. Right. I see a lot of co-branding, too, where you might bring on... Uh, where you might start mixing brands. So there might be a really big YouTuber that then goes and does a a television commercial for a big brand like Coca-Cola, and I guess we're trying to mix brands. Yeah, well, I would say um, the influencers are also a really expanding area of advertising right now. Um, You know, advertisers have always used celebrity endorsements from the beginning of advertising. There's always been some famous person who is willing to be paid to endorse a cigarette or a food product. Um, but today, audiences are more cynical about celebrities being paid. Um, and so now what we have is the rise of the social media influencer. And that's a person who's become like a micro-celebrity uh, for their social media posts. So, for example, on Instagram or YouTube, they have thousands of followers or even millions of followers and they're all now making brand deals. And what brands are doing is paying these influencers to integrate the brands or just out and out promote their brands in their social media content. And sometimes the promotions are just very open. Um, oh, here I am eating this um, special snack box and it tastes really good and you should eat it too. <laughs> or um, I'm using this makeup, you know, it really does great coverage on my skin. You see how great it is and you should use it too. Um, so sometimes the influencers get paid, um, you know, by the post. Sometimes they get paid in kind, like with products. Sometimes they get paid with uh, commissions. So they might say, um, you know, use my promo code when you order this product from their website. And then that influencer then gets a commission Mm. off of that sale. And so um, what's happening is that these forms of endorsements, um, which are also often product demonstrations, are seen by young people especially as more authentic than a big celebrity um, endorsing a product. And then because it's inside the person's content, it feels more authentic because it's just them talking to you and they're sort of like a friend of yours. Right. you know, social scientists call this a parasocial relationship where you feel close to the person, but they don't really know you. Um, and so 
um, when I've talked to my students about this, I have them analyze social media influencers of their choice, and they almost always tell me that, well, other social media influencers might be lying about the product, might not be that great a product. Their social media influencer is totally sincere. Yeah. Um, and so it's a very, very powerful form of marketing, um, and it's one way that advertisers are avoiding the problem of interrupting commercials that annoy people is by paying these influencers instead because the people are choosing to watch that content and choosing to interact with it, and they're believing it. It's uh, it's also interesting, too. Um, again, just for the listeners, we're, we're speaking with Cynthia Myers. She is a professor of communications at College of Mount St. Vincent in New York City. We're talking about TV shifting landscape and uh, kind of the move of a lot of advertisers to go to branding and branding with uh, with um, you know popular uh, personalities and and like YouTubers and and kind of going from television and, and mixing television to um, uh, online media, but I've I've seen even backlash if uh, if somebody uses their their channel or their uh, their image to be too much of a you know a, a huckster and too much of a salesperson of other products. They get backlash from their own viewers, like, "Ah, oh, you're selling yourself out. Why are you, why are you doing this to make money?" I mean, it really is. It's kind of a, it's it's just like more. It seems like people are more involved in impacting the advertising than they've ever been. Yes, and I think this is really an issue. I think that um, the issue of credibility for these new forms of advertising is really up for grabs. Um, and some of the influencers, I notice, actually make a point of criticizing certain products mm-hmm. um, in their content in order to prove that they're independent or that they're not afraid to criticize certain brands and that they're not entirely just, you know, bought off. Yeah. Um, and that's one way that they, they do try to maintain their credibility. Um, but I really do think it's it's an issue. And and the brands also are running risks. Um if if somebody who is being an influencer for them does something that uh, might not reflect well on the brand, oh yeah, um, that's so. Brand safety is the phrase that they use. So, for example, PewDiePie, who's a very famous YouTube gamer, yeah, like one um, of the blogger. one of the isn't he like the number one YouTuber? He he might be. Yeah, He's got over fifty million subscribers to his Jeez. YouTube channel. Um, and he has a very irreverent sense of humor, and he did some things that many people considered to be anti-Semitic. Mm. Um, and so a lot of brands pulled out of their deals with him because um, they were worried that that would reflect on the brand. And so we're returning to this whole problem of when brands are closely identified with personalities or with content that you know it can negatively affect the brand, but it can also negatively affect the content producer if they also start to lose credibility with their audiences for being too, too, you know, too closely identified with certain kinds of yeah. brands. So that so both ends, both sides of this, you know, relationship are running certain kinds of risks. And what's interesting to me is that one reason ads were separated from content um, in print pretty early on, but in broadcasting in the '60s. One reason they were separated was actually to provide more integrity or sense of integrity. So when you're watching the program, the program wasn't being actively affected by the advertiser, not directly, right? Mm-hmm. So that the program had integrity. Um, and then when you're watching the ad, 
the ad had to be as interesting as possible because otherwise they knew that you would check out yeah. because it wasn't the program. Um, and so when we move back to the integration, we're actually also returning to some of these really, you know, sort of difficult problems for, for everybody, including the audience, because now the audience hasn't really an easy way to identify what is paid for and what is not. Mm-hmm. The audience no longer knows if the influencer is just mentioning the brand because the influencer actually likes the brand or if the influencer is mentioning the brand only because the influencer is paid by the brand. And there's really no way for the audience to assess that. And the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, has been putting out guidelines um, asking the social media influencers to label paid promotions as such, you know, like hashtag ad or hashtag sponsored. And of course, a lot of brands and a lot of influencers don't want to do that Mm -hmm. because it undermines the authenticity and credibility of the message if the audience can see it clearly identified as an ad. Um, But then that's sort of the problem, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Where do you see this going, Cynthia, as we wrap this up? What what do you how do you sense, uh, you know, advertising will change in the future? Will we be able to play a pay a flat fee to never have to look at it again? Um, anything like that coming down the road, or do you see any changes that will be dramatic? Um, I, I don't see dramatic changes, but what I see is a, a continuing moving away from um, interrupting ads. Hmm. Um, I see an increase in branded content and influencer content. I, um, I think that's just going to happen more and more. Um, what I do see is a crisis in um, web the whole business model of the web um, where um, the ads that appear on websites um, actually aren't there because the advertiser wants to be adjacent to that content. They're there because they're doing behavioral targeting in which the ad is following the user around the internet and then the ad is delivered to that user when they land on a website. And so there's another crisis there in which the advertiser has not, chosen that content to ad advertise next to, right? So unlike magazines and television programs and the advertiser chose the content to be next to and therefore made a decision, oh, well, I want to be next to this content um, because it, it's yeah. giving me the audience I want. Instead, they're showing up on all sorts of websites that they really might not want to be next <laughs> to um, precisely because they're following the user, yeah. not the content. And so what we have is actually with this total separation of ad and content, we now have this new problem, which is that advertisers are now being told, hey, you know, your ad just showed up on this really objectionable website and you better do something about it. And the advertisers are now frantically trying to figure out how to get their ads off of websites they don't want to be associated with. Right. Um, and and though the problem, too, is that they're also being held responsible for that content when they actually have had nothing to do with it. So we have these these two sort of ends of the spectrum where advertisers are even more disconnected from the content um, on the one hand through web advertising, and on the other hand, they're trying to get more involved in the content in order to attract audiences who are trying to ignore them. Um, and in both cases, it's a, it's a dangerous, there, there's a whole set of problems for the advertisers and for the audience. Oh, yeah. And it's not like you can come back and say, well, hey, you were the one on the site. Get off the site. <laughs> it's like they're not going to win that. But and you, I mean, it really is showing, though, that they're putting down money and then all of a sudden the money 
can put them anywhere, wherever. I mean, they they can't control all the features anymore. They can just get to the demographic. Yes. And so, you know, one of the, I think that the entire infrastructure of web advertising is really at risk um, for, for this reason. And also all the privacy issues in the data that, you know, is being collected and the way it's being abused. Um, So one of the problems though is, is that, for example, the news industry is heavily reliant on, you know, this kind of programmatic, it's called programmatic advertising, um, where ads are being served on these news sites. Um, and so it's really a problem going forward because we've, we've left the world in which the publisher, the advertiser, and the consumer had a, a clear set of relationships, right, where the consumer bought Time magazine because the consumer knew what to expect when they were reading Time magazine. And the advertiser then bought pages in Time magazine because they knew what the editorial right. you know, policies were in Time magazine. So that, all those relationships are now completely fragmented and blown apart in this new sort of web advertising system. And so, you know, everybody is now struggling with trying to figure out what the solution should be. And there's no one entity that can sort of step in and say, okay, let's reorganize this. Um, because in the print industry, they did. They invented something called the Audit Bureau of Circulations back at the beginning of the 20th century, mm. which was like a trade organization that counted the number of issues that were published for every publisher in order to confirm that advertisers were not being defrauded by publishers. It was also a way for publishers to confirm to advertisers that they were reaching the audiences that they thought they were reaching. Right. And so that sort of central clearinghouse of information was a way of stabilizing the market for advertising a hundred years ago. And we don't have anything like that right now for web advertising. Oh, wow. Well, Cynthia, we appreciate you. Cynthia Myers is a professor, again, of communications at College of Mount St. Vincent in New York City, also the author of the book, A Word from Our Sponsor, Ad Men, Advertising in the Golden Age of Radio. Boy, oh boy, have times changed with all this online media And uh, apparently it's putting some major stress on the advertisers as well. They're losing some control and gaining more data. But with more data might come more responsibility, more problems that they didn't even uh, know that were coming. Crazy stuff. We'll continue the journey and do a little Coach's Corner up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! You know, it's interesting. All of this information that we get more and more and more, um, and we hear more about from uh, our advertisers and different advertising agencies, to the fact that Google and uh, Apple are receiving 80% of the income that comes in through app sales, um, the fact that... Uh, we now have heard Google and Facebook uh, had embedded uh, employees that worked for the campaigns during the election to basically help them get the best exposure using Google and Facebook, which means these companies actually helped people win. They helped President Trump win. Now, they would probably hate me saying that, but when you have embedded people that are there to help fully maximize the use of Google and Facebook for an election. And now we're hearing more and more that uh, Trump's people did that pretty well, as did Hillary Clinton's, as did President Obama's people. 
Uh, it shows you the power that media has. And remember, uh, when it comes to the power of the media today, especially the online media, it's really significantly more about your data than it is about your, uh, you know, trying to necessarily just bait you to do something. Um, the the data is what they're after. And when you think about uh, trying to move an election, for example, you don't need to move tens of millions of people to vote a certain way. You just need to go target certain groups. And now we have the ability to get in and target those groups down to the very minute group and actually influence them to get out and vote. And they may not even be out to vote for your candidate, but simply having them out voting, you know, might turn certain elections or turn other issues to your favor. Right. I mean, for years we heard about the fact that people would keep putting uh, legalizing marijuana issues on the ballot to keep pulling certain groups of people out of the out of the woodwork um, and, and either to fight that. So having an initiative like a marijuana on the ballot might bring more conservatives to the ballot or might bring, uh, you know, more um, more liberals to the ballot. So just know that it's probably not what it appears to be always. And uh, so if there's ever been a rule, caveat emptor, uh, buyer beware, watch out, be careful what you're doing, be careful on the data you're giving, be careful on um, what – if you notice that you went shopping for couches yesterday and today on your on your feed all you see are couch advertisements, don't think there's a spy. It's just how the internet is working now to take your data and keep using it against you. So be careful. Put up some filters. Do what you can. Be informed. And uh, and make a difference, really, in your own life. Take care of yourself. Protect yourself. Protect your family. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about etiquette when it comes to flying. You may need it if you're traveling during this crazy, busy uh, holiday season. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you fly safely. You know, if you're going to be traveling, you gotta you gotta know the rules, folks. Okay, uh, you gotta know the rules, the air etiquette rules. And so, who better to help us than one of our traveling experts, Terry South? I hate traveling. Even his name has, a tra- <laughs> has is, is associated with travel. Traveling's a hassle. You don't like it. Don't do it. Uh, so, British Airways surveyed 1,500 travelers from the U.S., the U.K., France, Germany, and Italy. Yeah. And they asked them different questions. How do you deal with this challenge of flights? And we'll run through a couple. <laughs> when it comes to the armrest, 67% of respondents say that passengers should commandeer one side of the armrest, leave the other side for their neighbor. That seems like good right? etiquette right there. Then it says 40% of British and American passengers occupying the middle seat said they were most likely to just take the both armrests. Just what? monopolize them. Just do it. I don't like. What are they going to do? Yeah. What, what are you going to do? Possibly, are they going to do to you? Uh, travelers from Italy, France, and Germany were more courteous. Nearly half said the valuable real estate should go to the first person who asks. Well, who's asking? Right. You just take it. I'm like, who has this conversation? I think it should go to the first person in the seat. There you go. Everybody should. Well, hold on. Yeah. No. Never mind. You're you're part of the forty percent apparently. Yeah. But whatever you do, we don't share it. I don't want your arm touching my 67% arm. 67% said you share it. How do you share it? I don't know. You use the edges. You don't you commandeer the your, whole thing. You just kind of hook your... Yeah. yeah okay. I don't know. Uh, shoes off. 59% says it's okay. Sockless. 87% say no. Brr. 
Don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, three quarters of Italians who come from the land of Gucci you know, loafers you know, uh, turn Italian. their noses up a passenger's taking off their shoes. So don't do yeah, that. Don't no, take no. off your shoes. Wouldn't do it. If the person in the aisle seat is snoozing and you need access to uh, the uh, use the facilities, let's do it that way. Uh, they go uh, according. Eighty percent of survey subjects say they will wake the person up. So mm-hmm. you're in the middle seat. The person on the aisle is asleep. Oh, yeah. You need to get out to use the restroom. There's eighty percent say wake the person up, or just what? You just go to the bathroom if you don't. You just climb. You just say I got to get up. Dude. But only once per trip added forty percent. Forty percent said more than once is rude. We'll tell that to my bladder. A third said they would steeplechase over the slumbering body, but huh. were torn over the best approach. More than half agreed that uh, when you when you slide past the person, yeah, it's best to go face to face. So you're looking at them as you pass by. Hold them. on, what percentage? What did this say? I just... Uh, That's weird, uh, I think. What's weird? That? Turning towards them? Yes. And then leaning to- over them, and then you could put your hands on their headrest so you can... It just seems a thir- strange. A third, a more than half of them agreed that face-to-face rather than you're looking, say, forward in the cabin, and then you pass by them. Okay. Sticking your posterior yeah. in their... In I know, direction but... To direction. go face-to-face. It's a very personal decision then there's, on that. Then there's eye contact, and it's awkward. Yeah. Hi. But if you're not waking them up Excuse and me. keeping your fingers crossed that Excuse they don't me. wake up. I'm just up. stepping over you here. Excuse so I got a few more. Okay, since we'll we're, this is a traveling weekend. Yeah. We'll talk about it. You don't want to miss these. These are the. This is air etiquette, folks, from the Matt Townsend Show. Here, doing what we can to help you fly, you know, in the friendliest way possible. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Terry and Cole. Jeff is on vacation. He's already started the holiday blitz. And Terry's been telling me about how he cooked... His own turkey. Well, my my wife like prepped it. Yeah, she done stuffed it. I put it in the stove or in uh, the oven. You know, edible, I, yeah. I I open the door, I set it in, I shut the door. You know what though? So At least I you did it, it, but you're cooking together. And well, pe- no, she had left for a meeting. Oh, okay. So she just said, "Hey, when this we had roasted vegetables going to, uh. so take those out and then put the turkey in." Yeah. So my my contribution was the physical labor of taking it from the counter into the oven. <laughs> I cooked it. It was me. But you had a full turkey meal, and then you got to have a sandwich. Yes. Oh, that's the best. Did you have the canned cranberries that came out in the Jello can or the gel- gelatinous can shape? We did. Oh, those are the best. And then I you slice it perfect. We could have done something more imaginative with the cranberries. And she goes, no, 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 no. Must look like a can. And Are you a, a mayonnaise or a Miracle Whip? Um, either way, she she purchases mayonnaise. I'm going with Miracle Whip. Yeah, I, I, I like sugar. I like the in tangy, my I like condiments. the tangy zip myself, but yeah. uh, she's not a fan. So. Tangy. <laughs> I like the tangy zip myself. That's great. Oh, I'm excited. But here's the deal: I, we're having a turkey dinner, mm. but I'm afraid we're staying at a condo. Ooh. But we're having the dinner at another place, yeah. so we will get nothing to take home. Yeah. Except what we bring, which will probably be – I think we're bringing gravy. So I will have a bowl of gravy. Maybe I'll 
Just drink that. It seems bad for you. Hey, we got a lot to talk about today. Uh, we'll be speaking with our our favorite Yale uh, psychiatrist, Everyone child psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Frank Ninavaji. He's going to be joining us to talk about learning disabilities, learning difficulties. We may be oversimplifying it. Mm. Remember, we used to just call people mentally – we actually used to call them mentally retarded was, was by definition right. what the diagnosis was. And he's going to say we don't – A, you don't really say that anymore, but you – it's more complicated than one diagnosis, right? So he's going to show us some of the complexities of it. But if you have a child that you think might be having a learning disability or struggling to learn, maybe there's some insights that uh, we all could, could strive for to hopefully make their life a little bit better. People need to be literate. Um, and if they're not, they're going to pay a high price. So we'll be covering that, of course. Plus, uh, speaking of literacy, uh, we could get into some of the headlines with uh, Washington, D.C., what's going on there. Uh, I'm a little frustrated, actually a lot frustrated about a a new mandate coming out um, by the White House to basically terminate the order. I mean, it was it was supposed to expire in 2019 for the Haitians that were uh, brought into the country, allowed into the country after the 2010 earthquake. Sixty thousand or so uh, Haitians came into the country, were able to work, were able to do a lot of things, uh, live here. And uh, it helped these refugees deal with the fact that their country was decimated. Well, uh, the Trump administration has decided that that will end officially in 2019. They won't extend it. So 58,000 refugees from Haiti need to go back home. They say they're doing that to protect the homeland. Um, and, and their argument was it was a temporary situation. Yeah, right, 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 right. Uh, seven years later, um, they're all going home to a place that doesn't exist and probably can't support 58,000 Americanized Haitians. What happens when 50? I mean, you'd think that would be a great thing. Hey, send 58,000 Americanized Haitians back to Haiti. They'll elevate the entire island. You can just hear the opposing voice saying, is that our fault? Yeah. No, it's just. So why do we have to deal with the the hassle? It's called charity. Oh, and it never faileth. But does it have limits? And ironically, these Haitians are probably serving an incredible purpose here they're helping they're taking our jobs they're taking the jobs that apparently nobody wants anyway oh did anyone ask yeah <laughs> i just it's, i i i've heard interviews with people yeah. as they talk about this and you look at them like but again you realize these are people in need yeah we can help them but yeah. we're choosing not to because jobs that nobody here wanted yeah. they took and, and now we're concerned about that and it's a position allegedly. people are taking it's a position you got to get rid of people that aren't like you that's a position but there's still a virtue and a principle behind this that these people need our help and by the way many countries still need our help well are we supposed to sit and just help everybody well i don't know what do you believe in no i believe in take 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 I mean, the funny thing is we just at some point have to live our values as we're entering a a season of thanks. Can you imagine if the United States suffered anything, anything close to what Haiti suffered Mm. in 2010? Decimated country and only 58,000 of of them made it to the United States. And we're like, no, get rid of them. They're a drag on our life. That's just crazy. 
again, on top of Puerto Rico, the the that power company from Wyoming, Whitefish oh, Energy yeah. or whatever it was they're called, now pulling yeah. out. They got they're by the way eighty five million dollars in debt. Yeah, because Puerto Rico can't pay the bill, and the money's not coming from the government to Puerto Rico to pay the bills. So they're going to leave with whatever percentage of power on. I think twenty five percent. Yeah. 75% of the power still not. So the quite. whole aspect of Christmas having power, meh, we'll see. Yeah. Disappointing. Yeah. Anyway, uh, this is just politics, really, I guess. And uh, the, But the sad thing is you still are going to go have your turkey dinner. Be careful you don't just get caught up on your positions, right? At some point, you also supposedly have principles. And hopefully your principles will help you vote and choose and lead lives of principle, not just positions on things. Uh, Let's get to the headlines with Terry South so Terry can help us understand what else should we be paying attention to. Union officials in Texas say an ambush was to blame for the death of a 36-year-old Border Patrol agent who was found with with head injuries over the weekend. Agent Rogelio Martinez died Sunday after being found at the bottom of a 14-foot culvert Late Saturday, he and his partner, who sustained serious injuries but survived, had been patrolling in the Big Bend area when they were injured in circumstances that are not clear. What we know is that the Border Patrol agent Martinez appeared to have been ambushed by a group of illegal aliens who he was tracking. Brandon Judd, a Border Patrol agent and head of the National Border Patrol Council Union, was cited as saying by the L.A. Times, Judd said Martinez was struck in the head multiple times with a rock or rocks. The FBI has confirmed that Martinez and his partner were found at the bottom of the culvert with serious head injuries, but given no, but gave no further details. A separate report by the Associated Press on Monday cited a U.S. official saying Martinez's partner has no recollection of the events, and investigators are looking into whether Martinez simply fell into the culvert. Oh, really? So there's this there's I mean, this yeah, story that fall. they were stoned essentially by an, an assailant of some kind. And then there's this other one where he might have just fallen down the yeah. culvert. They're not sure. But they but, weren't. Were they Haitians? No, they were I was just the checking. U.S.-Mexico border. So. Yeah. And people are jumping to social media and they're talking about this sure. story, but not no, not real, a lot of details are out there. And you have this other story about he might have just fallen down a yeah. hill. So this, this then, he uh, does also <laughs> push President Trump to like knock on the, build the walls. So yep. That's why we need a wall. He's talking about the people wall. People won't fall in culverts if we have a wall. Yeah. So I, we'll, we'll see. It, it's a scary story. Is these, the, he, he was out there. I'm investigating an alarm. They have uh, yeah. proximity sensors. Yeah. And he, sometimes it's an animal, sometimes it's human, and they, he determined it was a human, called for backup, and then they found him later. As well, he, we'll he find died, out. So it'll come out. The Federal Communications Commission on Tuesday will unveil a plan to revoke net neutrality regulations. This according to Politico. The commission's uh, chair, Ajit Pai, will reportedly introduce a plan to get Obamacare-era regulations that prevented Internet service providers from slowing or blocking certain web traffic or paying to put their preferred web content in a so-called fast lane. The Republican-led I'm FCC will vote lane. on the still-secret plan in December, as it says. Wow. Okay. We'll see how that goes. Get life um, in the fast lane. Nothing better than that. This was an interesting story I found. This, uh, sleep uh, National Sleep Foundation recommends an average of eight hours of sleep per night for adults. But sleep scientist Matthew Walker says that too many people are falling for uh, short of that mark. He goes, human beings are the only species that deliberately deprives themselves of sleep for no apparent gain. 
Many people walk through their lives in an underslept state, not realizing it. Wow. Walker is the director of the Center for Human Sleep Sciences at uh, University of California, Berkeley. He points out that a lack of sleep defined as six hours or fewer can have serious consequences. Sleep deficiency is associated with problems in concentration, memory, and the immune system and may even shorten your lifespan. We are better than all the other animals. But, I mean, and they talk about in here, the other animals, they sleep. They yeah. normally get their normal amount of sleep, but we deprive ourselves for what? To watch a TV show? But it's because they don't have hands. They You're also right. don't work 7 a.m. morning shows That's on the right. radio. And they don't have the internet. So. Such a good point. It's, and yet we sit there and think we are the superior species. The lack of sleep, we says, can't go to sleep quiets the mind and it dampens down what we call the fight or flight branch of the nervous system, which yes. is one of the key features of insomnia. And it can really have some inf- uh, some uh, horrible benefits also. He says, so uh, another solution if people choose to not go to a different room. So it's just this idea that you're, you're underslept and so everything is going to be a slower reaction. That's totally true. Yeah. Totally true. When I sleep when I'm driving, I don't react half as fast. That's right. You don't, you're not paying attention. Yeah. And if I haven't slept and I sleep while I'm driving, if I haven't slept for like a day and I'm sleep driving, horrible driver. Did you see that our, our mutual commute is going to have more construction? I know. I was so excited for that. Widening more freeways uh-huh. and bridges and overpasses yeah. like all the way up and down our entire commute. It's, it's going to be, be great. Awesome. I, I can't wait. We've been dealing with this. This, uh, this I, terror luge I through, uh, and through I thought Provo. It was, I thought that was going to end, but apparently no. they've extended the dates. And oh, they, it's going to go clear out on the freeway. We're talking no, different cities, brother. different counties. It's Come awesome. on! My uh, five-minute commute yeah, laughs at both sh- of you. Sh- sh- be quiet, be quiet. <laughs> Tell your five-minute commute to be quiet. <laughs> uh, nothing quite says it's the most wonderful time of year, like the Make America Great Again hat decorated with embroidered Christmas lights. Oh, neat. The festive items now for sale on President Trump's campaign store runs for $45, up from the $25 it costs to purchase the regular red mega hat, you know, whatever. So so the, the regular hat's 25 bucks, but yeah. this one with lights, well, yeah. $45. You got to pay for the lights, the yeah. bling. The official uniform of the war on Christmas, as President Trump called it, can be picked up along with a collectible ornament for uh, $45. Not nice little combo down from one hundred forty nine dollars. Aren't they the war on the war on Christmas? Though? Well, it's the uh, it's the official uniform though. Wear the Make America Great Again hat. Well, right, war on Christmas with the Christmas lights. That would be see. Well, that tell me that wouldn't put a little extra s- spring in Grandpa's. Step. You're fighting the mm. war on Christmas. You need to wear that hat. Apparently, yeah. But I thought they were for Christmas. No, they are. They're saying there is a war on Christmas. Oh, Other people the are trying to yeah. stop they're, it. They're, they're defending like, it. Okay. This is the uniform. It would actually they, that would be a commanding general. Okay. If, if you're if you get that hat, you are definitely in the upper echelon. What if I just want to be a lieutenant? Then mm. just get it without lights. Okay. And finally, yeah. Little tip here. Okay. What do you think about rehearsal Thanksgiving? Like a like a pre run like, like a, you did yeah it. we did for it. the food yeah pre run for what the food what about a pre run for Thanksgiving I like the food pre run I okay. think that's a brilliant idea I don't necessarily want to have everyone over for a pre run no, no 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 this is just about the food not yeah, about yeah. bringing people yeah. no, over let's it's do food it. let's do it okay because this this article in the Washington Post was talking about this woman uh, was you know she has a, a big gathering mm-hmm. and she wants to make sure all the food is going to work yeah. 
and the recipes are where she needs them and she knows how she needs to do that. So she decided to use her family as kind of the guinea pigs and she did a full Thanksgiving meal. What a wonderful woman. So so before hosting the whole family, she did the test run with her daughter and husband. Almost everything came out well, but when the dressing wasn't quite right, she consulted her mom. The Mm. two conferred on ingredients, technique, and cooking time. She ended up giving me her stuffing pan for Thanksgiving. It just didn't taste the same without the pan. It's always the pan. And you know what else? The love. The love of mom's little hands squishing through the stuffing. So is that... Is that just an excuse to have two Thanksgivings, yes. or is that uh, you're really testing out recipes? Well, you got to make sure these. The work. thing is, I think your brain actually believes you are really testing things out, mm-hmm. but your gut knows it's really just to satisfy its hankering. What do you think your husband felt? Do you think when he was eating the food, he was really like, "Well, I got to really make sure Thanksgiving's going to go off well"? No, or was he thinking, "Awesome, two Thanksgivings." He's like, "I am so grateful my wife is this controlling. We're going to have so much food in this house." <laughs> I love my wife. Yeah, rehearsal <laughs> Thanksgiving. People are doing that more. And I more think now. it's. I think it's a great idea. I think too. We ought to probably have a rehearsal um, conversation list. Oh, nice. Yes, I think I. I'm really seriously considering putting up a whiteboard. Next to our Thanksgiving table. So you check off? Topics we can discuss, topics that we shouldn't discuss. I probably will have music that we can turn up the minute somebody says something about, you know, some political figure. Right. Maybe you have some sort of light system. Yeah. To stop you hear about Charlie talk. Rose? Stop it. <laughs> we just turn it up. Give your kid an air horn. Oh, that's right? all we need. No, don't ever give your kid an so air horn. So every time someone does something, he can you can look over at him, give him the signal, he can light up the air horn. <laughs> Jimmy, hit the horn. Hit the horn. <laughs> yeah, I I think it's it's exciting. This is everyone always pretends like they don't like Thanksgiving, but it's something you'll like. I mean, the meal. Right. And the game. It's really fun to watch Detroit for 30 years lose a game. But this year Detroit could win. Are they playing? Who are they playing this year? Who? Don't they always doesn't Detroit always play the same? The Lions end up being one of the teams. Yeah, I haven't seen. I, I saw I saw the Cowboys are playing the Chargers. I thought the Cowboys and Redskins always played around. No, this it was time. the Cowboys and Lions. They always play on Thanksgiving. Just not each other. But yeah, yeah. the Cowboys are going to play the Los Angeles Chargers that nobody wants in Los Angeles and nobody wants to watch. Yeah, and then the NFL found <laughs> out they could make more money if they stuck another game on there. Oh, yeah, there's and a, so there's also a night game. Yeah, there's a night game. That's on like NFL Network, right? Yep. Yeah. And then they wonder why the ratings don't work. Yeah. They're spreading it too thin. Yeah, you're putting too much content out and it's not good content. Why don't mm. they give us good games on Thanksgiving? It's always the Lions. They're never good. They, but this year they're good, aren't they? This year they're doing better. Better than well, back in the old day, they never won. Right, and they they win occasionally. Yeah, they have an overpriced quarterback who can't quite get them over that finish line. Hey, if by the way, if you're heading to Montana, you might want to get pulled over. What? Oh yeah, it's kind of a weird story. Some Montana drivers got Thanksgiving turkeys instead of tickets. Isn't that sweet? They were pulled over, over, according to the Billings Gazette, reports that officers with the Billings Police Department checked for outstanding warrants Wednesday after pulling over drivers for traffic violations. Hmm. If they found no warrants, they issued a written warning and a frozen turkey. That is pretty cool. So you just get ticketed. Hey, yeah, I fixed that tail light. And hey, good job not having any any warrants. Proud of you on that one. Take a turkey. (laughs) Good job. No warrants. All right. (laughs) <laughs> Businessman Steve Gutanis uh, bought 20 turkeys and asked the department to distribute them in time for the holidays. Wow. So if you see those red and blue lights. Is there no food pantries in Montana? 
Well, yeah, but it's more about the drivers that don't have warrants. This is a traveling food pantry. Everything's not for the homeless. It comes to you. Okay. <laughs> Just seems like yeah, that's a. I mean, it's a good story, but it's a great story. Maybe there's a a kitchen somewhere that are going to feed the homeless, the less fortunate that yeah. some food. Ah, that aren't no? speeding. That aren't speeding when you pull them over or whatever they did. Because obviously the person was doing something. They they were pulled over. Right. Because no cop ever you're, pulls people over for no turning, reason. You're turning the spirit. What? Am I ruined it already? You're turning the spirit off. Well, ugh. what are you uh, going to do? Maybe this will help. Okay. Um, if you're a blonde and you're a teacher, you got to be careful. Listen to this story. A teacher has a really blonde moment when she sends her insurance f- f- uh, company a picture of herself instead of her car. Yeah. Yeah. Red-faced teacher suffered a hilarious blonde moment by sending photos of herself to a car insurance company rather than snaps of her vehicle. Alyssa Stringfella, 25, from Arkansas. <laughs> this is funny, yeah. <laughs> Arkansas, U.S., was asked to take front, uh, take a front and side profile picture before her new insurance could be processed. For her car. For her car, but they apparently didn't clarify that. But Alyssa, yeah. <laughs> who teaches special needs kids, misunderstood the simple request and instead sent... Uh, some images of herself. So she's out standing in front of her house. Smiling enthusiastically at the camera. <laughs> front and yeah. profile. And then Alyssa sent the the pictures in, um, and you know the, the guy from the insurance company started laughing, and he called her. Actually sent an email. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you need to send us pictures of your car, not you. <laughs> what do you say? Maybe, like, maybe it was an honest mistake. And she just, like many millennials, has a lot of pictures of herself on her camera yeah. roll yeah. already. Th- this is because of selfies. No, she just no. sent the wrong ones. This is a selfie situation. This is like, but, see, they want my picture, Grandma. Uh, my Grandma Carolyn was like, I think he's insuring the car, not you. <laughs> no, no, I'm sure this is what they want. But uh, the teacher chalks it all up to a blonde moment, but it has given so many people a good laugh that she said, I don't care anymore. That's nice of Alyssa to share that because right. share she may your, have been so embarrassed that she didn't want to share it. Share your shame and embarrassment. Share your shame. And that's if great. not, we will share it for you. <laughs> I think that's really cool. And by the way, back to the famous story that we had last time, uh, last year at this time, bears. Yeah. Bars. Uh-huh. Bears are now breaking into homes all over Monrovia, California. Well, build your house in their habitat. They're going to come in and eat your food. A family there says bears have visited her house three times in the past two weeks. Wow. Once they even came inside. Cool. Cell phone video uh, shows homeowner Jenny Mark's husband trying to reason with the bear cub. Don't get in my kayak. Do you remember that? Yeah. Uh, Bear cub that squeezed itself through the gap in her sliding door in an attempt to feast on the cat food. Mm. It's mother and sibling waited just outside. It's that fish flavor. They just can't get enough. Yeah. But is it real fish flavor? No, of course not. But they're going to waste that on yeah. a cat. Come on. Yeah, totally. We always leave our- Fancy uh, feast. That's what it was. <laughs> it's a fancy feast. By the way, have you ever watched a cat food commercial and thought, that kind of looks good? Uh, no. Really? Nope. The, not the canned one where they're like, mm. kind of looks like tuna? Nope. Because yeah. yeah. it doesn't. It's yeah. brown and- Slimy. Yeah, me either. Like, no. Yeah. Right. It's totally what I got from that question. Yeah, once I did. You're over there putting your, your bib on, getting your knife and fork looks, ready. Like, what's the deal with these cats? How come they get the good stuff? They're spoiled. This family said they always left their sliding door open about five inches to let the cats go in and out. But, uh, you know, now they've learned that that lets the dogs in. Uh, the father estimates the bear cubs weighed about 200 pounds apiece. His wife said uh, the husband tried to shoo them out, but eventually they just left on their own. That's that's what they do. 
Eventually, they'll just decide it's not worth it. Got to get out of here. Uh, their home is near the foothills, so you got to watch out. It's a nerve-wracking thing. Be careful this holiday season. Uh, you know, count your cats. And, uh, and don't count your bears. And count your bears, and don't leave the cat food out. And don't eat it, for heaven's sakes. You don't know what's in that. Hey, straight ahead, we're going to be speaking with our favorite Yale psychiatrist, Dr. Frank Ninavaggi, will be joining us, talking about learning disabilities and uh, and helping you understand, you know, some basics about learning disabilities and your children. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, it's very difficult in today's world to live without literacy and basic literacy uh, skills. The developing world is constantly trying to figure out how to spread reading, writing, and calculating to the rest of the world and how to get students in the United States up to speed. But what are some of the underlying problems that may be impacting um, our learning and our and our ability to learn? Um, there's, there's also a lot of other uh, political issues at play where the money's being spent, uh, how much time parents are able to give to their children and some of their learning as well. So here to help us kind of sort through learning disabilities and, and understand better uh, what's going on with some of our children and why they're learning, maybe they may be struggling to learn, is one of our great uh, contributors, Dr. Frank Ninavaji. He's an assistant clinical professor of child psychology or psychiatry. Got to get that very straight. Child psychiatry. He's a medical doctor. Um, at Yale University. He's here to teach us a little bit more about learning difficulties. He's also the author of a, a, a lot of books. Uh, he's a regular contributor to Psychology Today, and he has a recent book, Making Sense of Emotion, Innovating Emotional Intelligence, which was just published. And uh, Frank, how are you doing today? Fine. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. You bet. We love having you on, and we love to pick your brain. Um, Now, we talk about learning disabilities and learning difficulties, but as as I read your article, what I realized, Frank, is – Boy, there's a lot we don't know about learning disabilities. And yet we, you know, your child might be diagnosed with one and you may not even know where to begin to even know how to handle it. That's true. And if you uh, notice uh, in the article, I gave the uh, prevalence rates. Yeah. You know, uh, <clears throat> I always bring up ADHD and I sort of uh, wince when I do. But the prevalence rate of ADHD is 5% in children, whereas the prevalence rate of um, specific learning disabilities or specific learning disorders is 5 to 15%. Huh. Much higher. It's almost triple. Yeah. Now, you never hear about my child has an LD. Right. Every child that we hear about has ADHD, but the scientifically measured prevalence rate is only up to 5% for ADD, ADHD, whereas the scientifically measured prevalence rates in the DSM-5 for specific learning disorders of reading, writing, or mathematics is anywhere from 5 up to 15%. Hmm. So it's much more prevalent, prominent, and common, but it's really not spoken about a lot. 
And uh, there probably is, we can speculate on the reasoning behind that. Yeah. In fact, talk about, uh, like, give us, give us an example of what are some of these learning disabilities? Because I, I, we, we know of the term ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. We've, we've heard that. We've seen that thrown around. But we may not even know the names of many of the learning disabilities. Well, um, in child psychiatry, that, I'm a child psychiatrist, medical right. doctor psychiatrist. We use the DSM-5, fifth edition revision, and try to narrow things down and make things as specific uh, as possible and scientifically uh, clear and valid, true. So in psychiatry, uh, when a child has a, a real learning disability, Psychiatrists refer to it as a specific learning disorder, and that falls into one of three categories, either reading or writing or Mm. mathematics. But if you read the article and my experience for 25 years at the Devereux Glen Home School shows that even though the learning disorder of reading is most prevalent and prominent. Usually when that's present, there's always another learning disorder or disorders that accompany it. Like there's a writing difficulty or there's a mathematical problem difficulty. But usually only one of the the learning disorders, the specific learning disorders, really dominates the Hmm. child's academic performance. And that's, it's very critical to realize here, we are really talking about learning problems, a problem in how to learn. ADHD is not a problem of learning. It's a problem of performing. Hmm. Because many of the ADHD so-called children have normal IQs, and they can learn fine. Their problem is performing what they already know. Interesting. That's an interesting difference, right? It's a very interesting difference, and some might argue with me and say their attention problem prevents them from learning properly. You know what it really is? If they attended and concentrated, they'd learn wonderfully, yeah. and they'd store the information, it'd be in, the, in their minds, but in terms of performing it, that's where the difficulty is. It's a performance inability. Now, one of the uh, uh, subtle implications of what I've been saying is that there are no medications Number one, that increase intelligence. Hmm. There are no smart pills. Right. Number two, there are no pills or recommended medications for the, the prevalent learning dis- disorders. Up to 15% of children have problem reading, reading well. But there are no drugs, no drug manufacturers who've come up with uh, something clever and uh, told teachers, parents, and uh, American society, this is a learning disorder pill. Hmm. So we don't have that, and therefore that whole domain in academics 
is sort of falls by the cracks, falls obscured. It's overshadowed by the ADD, ADHD, only 5% prevalence, but 500 different medications, all purporting to... Uh, treat it. Yeah, rid you of it. So that's interesting. So one of the reasons we don't hear about learning disabilities as much is it's not treatable by pharma pharmaceuticals. Right, pharmacology, yeah. ph- pharmaceuticals or drugs. <laughs> interesting. And the truth is, yeah. nor is ADHD right. when it comes down to it, because children with ADHD on drugs may improve a little bit, but they still have difficulties. I know that as a fact. I've seen it for 25 years. Children from three years old up to 22, three years old, they still have difficulties. And the, what really it goes in the shadows is the side effect of the stimulant medications that are being given. The side effect profile is horrendous. It's not spoken about. Uh, Every uh, stimulant medication for ADD, ADHD has a black box warning, may cause addiction, may cause uh, addiction and withdrawal, Mm. may cause psychosis, will raise your blood pressure. That's the black box warning. But parents are not told this. And then when I see the children at the Devereux Glenholm School, and they have all these side effects, no appetite, no growth in height. Uh, they tremble. They're, they're full of anxiety. They have sleep difficulties uh, such that parents load them up with melatonin, which doesn't work. Right. Uh, it's because of the side effects of the stimulant medication. Mm. It's a tangled web. And then, uh, but boy, it sure makes sense the way you put it that way that when we think of it as a chemical fix, um, it, it makes it easier. But the fix to a learning disability would be, I guess, intervention on either their ability to read, write, or calculate. Exactly. And those interventions, I, I don't want to use a kind of too harsh a word. Those interventions have to be massive. And massive means they have to be, number the problems have to be recognized. They have to be delineated. One has to see, uh, does the child have a major reading problem, a major mathematical problem, or a major um, uh, other problem, or a combined problem with writing? And it's usually a mixture. And then, what interventions academically in school, what learning strategies, techniques, that you could teach the child, that you could actually put the child in an environment so that learning is easier for the child, and then that you could help the teacher or the special Mm. ed teacher train and teach the child in ways that that will get through and have a a meaning for the child, become meaningful. It's really solving... it's, It's learning how they learn, learning what their disability is, learning how to mitigate... And, and give them the highest opportunity to learn. That's exactly right. And then, and then teaching the everyone else. Yeah. That are there. That's great. Minimize the disabilities. How right. do we know? 
Uh, because I, uh, another thing that kind of surprised me about your article, again, as we're speaking with Dr. Frank Ninavaji, who is uh, an associate attending physician at Yale New Haven Hospital and assistant clinical professor of child psychiatry at Yale University uh, School of Medicine's um, Child Study Center. I'm wondering, uh, Frank, I didn't realize that th- these learning disabilities, I guess, are, are you should know by what, six years old? Well, it's one to six. Uh, six years old is first grade, and things are still a little bit in unmatured in the process of formation. Okay. Certainly, by about eight uh, eight years old, which is second third grade, you begin to see problems with reading, understanding reading, problems with penmanship, writing, problems with mathematics, and then you just keep monitoring it. And for sure, by 10 years old, you can delineate who has and who does not have a, a true specific learning disorder. And as soon as you, you see it, you know, there are many ways to um, kind of evaluate it. And I've listed them in the article. Yeah. And that's what special ed teachers do. And they're, they're supposed to do. <clears throat> But it's a little complicated and time-consuming. But once a parent senses that his or her child is not reading properly, reading fluently, writing in a legible, reasonable way, or understanding or getting mathematics, that parent has to uh, call a meeting with the teachers. And uh, if things really do look rocky, then testing is in order. Testing and um, trying to determine whether or not a specific learning disorder is present or absent. And if it's present, deciding exactly what that child needs for remediation in the classroom. Do we leave this up to our teachers or really do we as parents need to, if we can, step in and, and really lead this? Years ago, Everybody left everything up to everybody else. <laughs> right. Uh, the nowadays, good old days. <laughs> I think we're either a little smarter or a little stupider yeah. or mixtures. And I believe it's the mixtures. We think we're clever, but we're clever fools. It's not wise to leave anything up to anybody else. You know, this is the definition of the word accountable, accountability. You have to be a self-activist. That's a a phrase I use throughout my writings. Each one of us has to take the bull by the horns, be a self-activist, be highly accountable, and be on top of whatever's going on in our lives and Mm. in our children's lives. And if you you see something not working out right, a child really not doing homework or or getting uh, failing grades, then you need to um, communicate with the teachers. You have to engage. You have to be not proactive, but you have to be active, active, active yeah. to the, in a reasonable way. Right. Now, I'm, I mean this just the way I say it, in a reasonable, cooperative, agreeable way, because we're all members of one team, the human team, and uh, whether that's in school or in the family, it's one team, and the older we are, the more we have a sense of accountability and responsibility for the younger ones that are amidst us. Mm. How do we not over 
like, how do I not get too worried and how do I not get too passive? It seems like some parents might go into denial when they see a learning disability and some might just go into freak out mode. Well, <laughs> it's a big question and you touch on a lot of uh, characterological, a lot of political, a lot of cultural, a lot of uh, depending on where you live, what city, what town, what state. Um, <clears throat> you, you, the, the, uh, the middle path is always the path that seems best, seems rightest and truest. So the child should be passing all his or her subjects, should not be failing. And by passing, I mean Bs. Mm-hmm. C- occasional C, maybe an occasional A, but at least a solid B, B-. minus. If you see major discrepancies in the child's academic performance, uh, as long as the child is going to school, that's number one. Child yeah. has to go to school. Try to uh, learn and uh, take the tests and get the feedback. Uh, if you see something that is a continuous pattern of failure, meaning not success, then each of us has a right to question why is this happening? And uh, it's happening for a reason. Maybe we don't know the precise, exact reasons, but we, we know enough so that we can implement a treatment plan, an educational treatment plan that should be helpful. And that educational treatment plan needs to be monitored continuously. Mm, that's great. And I guess... Um, we might have to turn off a little bit of our embarrassment because we might be embarrassed by their lack of grades. One of the things I loved about your article that you wrote in Psychology Today, and for those listening, Literacy Rampage, So You Want to Be Literate is the name of the article. Um, But it also gives us some insight into the fact that it's a very complex problem. And we, we it's not just that they're smart or dumb, right? It's not just that they're good or bad. What I love about how you work, Frank, is there's a lot of gray, and a lot of this is gray. Um, just It's complicated, right? That's right. A lot of it is uh, we, all of us exist on a spectrum, and in reality, there's no end either way to the spectrum. It's just one, uh, it's one entity, one existential entity. And we all participate in it, some better, some worse, and some of our functioning, some people function in an uneven way, some people function in a more even way. They have more successes in more things, or they have great success in one thing, but not so much success in many, many other aspects of their lives. Hmm. So we have to take that into consideration, Uh, subtleties. In, it used to be called, uh, in former times, individual differences. Individual differences are real. They are part of the way uh, the creator of the universe, uh, I think, has planned it. Organized, yeah. We, I see it all around me. I see some trees are taller, some trees are shorter. Some flowers are pink, some are white, some are called roses, some are called peonies. There's so much individual uh, distinctiveness, and so too us, human beings, as part of great nature, 
have these individual differences. So we're not going to be like uh, from a cookie cutter. Mm. And every kid's different, even in your own gene pool. That's that's another thing I've learned is they're all unique, just, you know, Isn't just unique wonderful? gifts. It is wonderful. It is so wonderful. It's oh, but it's hard adventure. to parent. Hard to parent. Well, you, it's a we, wonderful we, hardness. It is. We it's want a, a cookie it's cutter. A, it's an awesome hardness. It really is. Frank, when is, I say that word awesome, I don't mean like the hippie yeah, awesome. Yeah, like totally cool. I mean awe. I'm full of awe when I see each individual child at Devereaux Glenholm. He, she is so different from all the other children. They all come in with the same diagnoses, autistic spectrum, ADHD, bipolar, but everyone is an individual. Yeah. I have a kind of a funny thing when I have phone calls with parents. Uh, sometimes a parent can really get uptight, and this addresses what you've referred to earlier. Yeah. And the, the parent uh, becomes defensive, and in order to quell the parent's own anxiety, he or she will say, what is my child's diagnosis? I have to know my child's diagnosis. Do you know? And so I say, of course I know. <laughs> I know your child's precise diagnosis. Now, are you ready? Are, are you listening? This is the precise diagnosis. Human being. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, Frank, that's beautiful. Seriously, love having you on the show and just love that insight. They're just human beings. Dr. Frank Nindavaji, thank you so much. Happy holidays to you. Again, everybody, go find Frank's book, Making Sense of Emotion, Innovating Emotional Intelligence. Um, wonderful read there. Plus, go you can go find him on Psychology Today. He, he really has uh, just just so many incredible articles and profound profound depth. Um, That's it. Diagnosis for all of us. Just human beings. So beautiful. What a beautiful spirit, really. Uh, We'll continue the journey straight ahead to a quick little coach's corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. You know, welcome back. Uh, when we talk about um, Turkey Day and the great opportunity to hang out and be with each other, one of the things that will come to a head, I'm sure, is the fact that you will be sitting around a table with a bunch of human beings, as Dr. Frank Ninavaji just taught us. Uh, it's We're all just humans, right, on this great big ball of mud doing what we can to survive, and many of us don't even know the things that are truly impacting us so deep inside. We don't understand how our genes are making us be. We don't understand our choices. We don't even understand our um, ourselves well enough to really to be the person we need to be. And then on top of that, we put 10 of us around a table with a lot of history, a lot of assumptions, and we're going to carbo-load everybody up. It seems like the making of something crazy. So what I would just suggest as your coach uh, helping you get through life could we just understand that everybody needs uh, to just be accepted and, and appreciated for being alive, for being who they are? Is there a way that you can take these people that you love and care about the very most and extend during Thanksgiving time a little humanity and a little acceptance um, and, and really maybe a little bit more compassion? 
And when when you think about being a human being, it's the human part that makes it the test. It's also the human part that makes it the challenge and makes it so we can all grow a little uh, taller and be a little better. So I challenge all of us to be grateful to the humans that are around us, show some gratitude, and let's make this holiday season something really special by you being something really powerful. Be the kind of human being you really truly want to be. We're going to take a quick little break. When we come back, one of our favorite human beings, Leanna Tan, is here, and she's going to give, go on a little bit of a tangent about uh, Black Friday where, again, humans seem to take a whole lot, whole different personality on. We'll continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. It's time, folks. Uh, Leanna Tan is in the office. She's She comes in about twice a month to, uh, to work and... Uh, and just hang out with us in studio. How are you, Leanna? I'm doing great. Leanna's known for her tangents. Yeah. Leanna Tan's tangents. Today you're going to take on what idea? You're going to take on Black Friday. Yeah, because I was at the mall the other day. Yeah. And I walked in just to return something casually. You know, I was like, oh, this will take about two minutes. But I was wrong because the, people started selling. They're starting the Black Friday so, sales like a week early. Oh, come so on. I was drawn in and I ended up yeah. spending like. Thirty more dollars? <laughs> Did you really? Yeah. You know, you don't great. have to spend. Uh, when you see those kind of deals, I mean, you yeah. Got were they it. good deals? They were good, and so, but the, I've never actually done the Black Friday thing, really. So no, I haven't either. Yeah, I always go at like the end of the day, you know, like when the sun's setting, and then catch the end of the day. I had a friend who did Black Sabbath. That's not the same. That was music but, back in the day. Yeah. Uh, so you're going to teach us how to handle the Black Black Friday? Yeah, because I figured um, maybe this year I would try. But then I started looking. I found this article on Forbes.com that kind of told us the survival guide. Okay, yeah. And it sounds like it's mayhem. All right. Their survival. Oh, so listen to the advice. So first of all, they uh, recommend wearing a crossbody bag to protect you from thieves. Okay. So oh, this is whatever intense. you do, you've got to have a, a bag that goes across your chest. Yeah. Yeah. Without any ammo, without any hand grenades. I didn't know people got so into this. And uh-huh. that there were thieves. Crossbody. Yeah. Don't, don't have a well. shoulder bag. You're easy target. Yeah. And along with that, it says <laughs> bring a big unmarked brown bag to conceal valuables while you shop. So not really? only are you carrying all your shopping bags, but you're also carrying this big un like Unmarked brown, brown, bag. brown bag. You don't want any branding on it. Exactly. And how do you find one of those? Well, I guess you got to go buy one on Black Friday. <laughs> yeah. First thing, go buy the big unmarked brown bag. And okay. who are these people? I guess they're the shoppers. Are they also stealing stuff like from other people too? <laughs> maybe don't even take a bag, right? Just maybe take like your wallet and your credit card and <laughs> stick it in your pocket. That's a good idea. Um, number three. Um, you're supposed to stake out the closest register to your desired merchandise. This sounds so intense. What? Yeah. So you're supposed to go beforehand, scope out the store, oh, this is, this see is the... where you want your desired merchandise, and the and like the beeline you can make to the closest register. So you can oh, because you're going to run in, you're going to sprint in, you're going to grab your goods, and then you got to sprint right to your register. Yeah. While you're pulling a 54 inch television behind you. So I've been working out this past week just to gear up yeah, for this event. <laughs> You look huge. Doing legs every day. <laughs> so a lot of this is just, this sounds like mayhem. This sounds like a very violent thing. I feel thing. terrified. I don't know if I want to do no, this. No, this is. <laughs> listen, to, listen to this one. This was so crazy. Put your address and phone number inside your child's pocket just in case they get 
kidnapped or Ooh, lost during this process. Don't take your kid. I know. So, I mean. That's crazy. If my mom ever took me to yeah. shopping without that card in my pocket, right. I knew she just she oh, yeah. wanted to get rid of me. It well, you know, Cole's mom used dealer. to just hook a like a harness on him. Yeah. And then they just had him always tethered. <laughs> it was smart that way. It's like, they oh, never lost him, though. Kids uh, are bad. Let's take him. Yeah, I wouldn't, Black Friday I wouldn't, shopping. <laughs> I wouldn't suggest you take your kids Black Friday yeah, shopping. Yeah, it sounds right? like a horrible thing. Maybe leave them at home or put them in your brown bag. Yeah. You know, if you got a big enough bag, just Conceal drag them. Conceal those valuables. <laughs> Son, mom will look for you in about 10 minutes after we get out of Kohl's. Yeah. Man, any cool. other advice to get through this crazy day? Uh, I think the last thing I found on a different article was the best advice probably. Yeah. And it's just... Avoid it all together and enjoy your leftovers. That's right. Go munch on your leftovers. And if you have to, go online. You can do Black Friday shopping online. Yeah. And in the comfort of your own little brown bag at your house. Yeah. Just watching your little kids. Put put an address in your kid's pocket. See, Leanna, you did it again. Yeah. Great advice from Leanna Tan. And, uh, you know, it's just Black Friday, but let's make it White Friday. What does that even mean? I don't know. We will continue the journey next hour. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side, along with Cole and Terry. Uh, Jeff's out of the building Jeff's on the road, so Cole is filling in for him. Thanks, Cole. For Nothing being with is us. more relaxing than driving to California with your two beautiful daughters. For the in holidays, the faster, Daddy, fast. Are we there yet? But they're going to be excited because they'll just watch movies. Jeff won't. Jeff will drive. Hopefully. Well, he does like movies. Yeah, but then the kids will just—he'll just keep engaging the children. By the way, his wife and and their son are flying, loving it. That's so cool. What a guy. Like gets the gets the wife on an airplane, and then he drives his kids. It's considerate. What a wonderful man! Uh, we got a great show for you. We got a lot to cover today. We're going to be talking a lot about, um, uh, of course, the headlines. And Terry will get into the headlines. But uh, weird stories going on. Uh, Charles Manson dead. Uh, by the way, of natural causes, eighty-three uh, years of age, um, and uh, you know. You, you you all remember the story, Helter Skelter, all the craziness that surrounded him and his life. It also just still amazes me to this day how many people get married in prison. A lot of the, a lot of these murderers that are in for life, they still have a great dating world. Apparently, people are like they just they really want to be a part of his life. Still, I don't understand it. Yeah, what I. It's a little odd. I work with a lot of people that would love to get married. They're wonderful people, no, and not mass murderers, oh. and they can't find a date. Wow. Maybe you should uh, start a service. Well, but the problem is I think people are attracted to mass murderers. Oh. I think it might be the enclosed-in area. It's like high school. You just yeah. stick a bunch of people in an yeah. area they can't get out of, and they just pair off. It's what happens. <laughs> Jill's the same yeah. way. And everything seems like better than it is, I guess. I mean, it's always there's always that yeah, I call it the yearning stage of love where you have really high chemistry and really low clarity. 
But if you're dating a mass murderer, that's the same thing. If you're dating a serial killer, I mean, because it seems like the serial killers, the ones that are in a long time are the ones that find these women that want to marry him. They're in it for the long haul. Women are about commitment. They know he's going to be there tomorrow. (laughs) Well, that's the thing, though, is that they actually don't get access to him. Oh. Too much access. But they get enough. Yeah. They can correspond through letter. It's a safe kind of date. Yeah. Can you imagine, like, breaking that news to your mom? Okay, mom, you're going to die. Well, I shouldn't use those words. But mom, there's this guy I've been dating. And it looks like we're getting married. Oh, honey, I'm so happy. Are we going to meet him? Mm, Probably not. But you know all about him. Yeah, you've heard about him. (laughs) Unbelievable. Well, um, what do you do? What do you do? So we'll be talking about uh, that. Of course, also um, coming up, we're going to be getting into the fact that maybe the English language, if 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 it didn't have so many rules that you had to follow, it might be an easier language to learn. But it's a very hard language. And, you know, how we spell things matters. Maybe, by the way, not, I mean, I, was, I won the spelling bee. Well, yeah. I got to the finals in the spelling bee. Sure. And then I spelled a word wrong. I spelled loin. Oops. Instead of lion. Oh. And I was like the it's, oldest kid in the room. It's a common mistake. Not really. I know. I'm trying to help out. Yeah. And it was a Christian school. Ooh. So every first grader in the room knew what your loins are. They're like, oh, we know what loins are. Right. That's, what, that's the word he went out on? That's like first grade material. In yeah. The, in the, totally <laughs> embarrassing. Totally embarrassing. Um, uh, anyway, we'll get to all that fun. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? Nearly a year into the Trump presidency, countries around the world are scrambling to adapt as the White House is struggling to fill key government positions, scaled back the State Department, and upended old alliances. Now some nations are finding that even if they are frustrated by President Trump's Washington, they can still prosper from robust relations with, say, the California Republic and a constellation of like-minded U.S. cities, some of which are bigger than European countries. Ooh. So the Washington Post story here, they're talking about how different governments around the world are just going right to the states or right to the cities. Just go right to, the, yeah. To negotiate trade deals, to, to have interaction and diplomatic relations yeah. that way, because these cities are bigger than some of their countries, so no, why that's not? That's so true. That's not a bad idea. And part of that is because the State Department is, well, understaffed. Because well, there's nobody to talk to at certain desks that used to be there oh. five, ten, fifteen years ago. But, so now you just go to California, talk to those. But guys. hold on, but doesn't the doesn't the federal government have to sign off on treaties of transport and Depends. economics in and out of the country? It says, uh, meanwhile, state and municipal governments are expanding or building new offices to help them manage the increased interest in Europe and Asia. This year, uh, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti created the position of Deputy Mayor for International Affairs to better manage relations with foreign governments. Many world leaders say they have no illusions that they can avoid the White House on critical issues at the core of global uh, stability, especially those related to security. Hmm. But they have embraced efforts by Democratic governors and mayors to present a different face of U.S. power to the world, albeit a lower level than the White House or the State Department. Wow. That's, that's going around the big guy. The, uh, Losing go- power. Jerry Brown, governor of California. Yeah. There was a uh, it was it was supposed to, I believe, um, the one or two year anniversary of the Paris climate Paris climate agreement. They had a meeting, I believe, in Germany and 
the United States sent a delegation, but they were talking about the benefits of like clean coal and stuff right, like that. Right. Governor of California went. He was treated like a state dignitary as he addressed uh, the European Union's uh, governing boards and stuff yeah. like that. So, wow, what happens when yeah. they don't even go through DC anymore? I don't know, but if they're, I mean, if you think about it, they want to do business. If they're yeah. not being able to get any help from the federal government of the United right. States. Why not talk to the states that want to do sure. have a relation and I mean, have that it, business relationship? Well, it used to be you. the relationship was we were like sister cities yes. with some city in Shanghai or near Shanghai or wherever, and um, you'd have a cultural yeah, exchange. Yeah, it'd business, just be cultural. Yeah, yeah. We, we we'd be in their parade, they'd be in our parade. Right. But now they could like, hey, we want to do it. We want to cut a deal with California. I mean, California is really what one of the top. It's bigger the GDP than GDP is yeah. like bigger than. 20 countries yeah. right so i mean it, it, it makes sense but it's some it's odd because of the current situation when it comes to yeah uh the way the government is functioning at the moment with less than a month to go before the special election to fill the senate va- seat vacated by attorney general jeff sessions alabamians apparently that's how you refer that how you to it i'm i've heard multiple people stumble alabamians they're like oh citizens of alabama are, are split over how to respond to the sexual misconduct allegations against senate candidate roy moore dozens of religious leaders gathered to register their dissent at a baptist church in, in uh, birmingham saturday saying moore is infected with a false religious virus Ooh. In addition to addressing the accusations against Moore from the growing list of women speakers at the gathering of pastors, critiqued the candidate's apparent verbal swipe of the 1965 Voting Rights Act on Tuesday. However, many prominent Alabama Republicans remain loyal partisans. I believe in the Republican Party, what we stand for, and most important, we need to have a Republican in the United States Senate to vote on things like Supreme Court justices, says the governor of Alabama, conceding she finds the alleg- uh, the accusations troubling, but she will still vote for the Republican running, which would be Roy Moore. Well, see, this this goes back to the bigger problem, maybe that um, we we no longer vote for you know principle; we kind of vote for party. Yeah. But the reality is, it sounds like he's going to lose either way, right? So, if they vote him in, it sounds like. Congress or the senators here in town will kick him out. That's what they're so they're saying. There's several ideas, yeah. But um, so she says, well, I got to vote for the Republican. Except, two, your people. It's a it's a Republican state, mm-hmm. and if the Democrat actually wins, then that means Republicans did vote for the Democrat. That's right. So you're actually going against your own state. Your states will. I don't know. It's a weird yeah. problem. There is also you don't have to vote for any candidate. Yeah. You could write in somebody. I mean, some people didn't vote for Trump and they're Republicans and they didn't. But they're just like, I'm not I got to vote for, uh, you know, some people want to vote for principle, not just party. Could yeah. we just give him a booster shot for that false religious virus that he has? I don't know yeah. what that means. How does yeah. one get that? I tried to find more clarification on, you know, what they're overall because <laughs> sometimes they use metaphor and things. But yeah, yeah. Like, what does that mean? I didn't see a, an in-depth no, he's got, he's review got a virus. of He's got FRV. A U.S. Customs and Border Protection agent died Sunday after he was injured while on duty in Texas. The agency said in a statement, 
Uh, Rogelio Martinez, 36 years old from El Paso, and his partner responded to activity in the Big Bend area when they were injured. A Border Patrol spokesman said he could not disclose what happened to the agents. Martinez died at the hospital. His partner, whose name has not been released, remains in serious condition. Authorities are searching for suspects and witnesses to the incident with the FBI taking over the investigation. So absolutely no indication of what happened. There's no detail of where they... Senator Ted Cruz came out and said it's obvious they were attacked. Yeah. Well, no, they could have just crashed their car. I mean, yeah, we have no idea what happened, but people are jumping out there. President Trump's commented on it, and not in a way that's you know measured. Right, right. Everybody, everybody has an opinion. Jump to a conclusion that you have no evidence of. Uh, that's I mean, that's common now, right? It's just what you do. So that's going on. We'll see where that story goes. Okay. Uh, and finally, researchers at Oregon State, this may be good for your health, Matt. Oh, good, good, good. They have patented a new strain of seaweed Ew. that tastes just like bacon when it's cooked. Oh, wow. Think of that. The seaweed, a form of red marine algae, looks like translucent red lettuce. It also has twice the nutritional value of kale and grows very quickly. I'll take that. And then the article says, did we mention it tastes like bacon? That's... By the way, is it red naturally? I guess red algae, mm-hmm. because red and bacon, I mean, boy. So according to the Oregon State researcher Chris Langdon, his team started growing the new strain while trying to find a good food source for edible sea snails, yeah. which are very popular in many parts of Asia. So they sure. want to try to find a way to, to boost that, that uh, crop of sea snails. Um, the strain is a new type of red algae, normally grows along the Pacific and Atlantic coastlines, but Langdon realized he had his hands on something with a lot more potential when his colleague Chuck Toombs visited his office and caught a glimpse of the growing seaweed. Toombs said he thought uh, the bacon seaweed had potential for a new industry in the state of Oregon. So the Oregon's Uni- Oregon University's Food Innovation Center started creating a range of foods with the seaweed as its main ingredient. Langdon said no U.S. companies grow red algae for people to eat, but the seaweed has been consumed by people in uh, Northwest Europe for centuries. Huh. They'll eat anything out oh. there, apparently. <laughs> this stuff is pretty amazing, he says. When you fry it, which I have done, it tastes like bacon, not seaweed. And it's pretty strong bacon flavor. It's not just like a, a hint That's of bacon. Great. It's like, you know, yeah. robust. Though no analyst has, uh, analysis has been been done yet to find out whether commercializing the bacon seaweed would be practical. The team thinks the vegan and vegetarian markets may be interested. Now you could get a seaweed, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. There you go. And every pig in America just was like, huh? Whew. That's great news. <laughs> I think the sushi implications are clear here. Right. Ooh, adds, mix it in there. That's a whole kind of yeah. flavor to that. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But when they say it tastes like bacon. That's my question. That's the thing. Does uh, it really taste like bacon? Yeah. Or, or does, does it, it taste, taste like, like seaweed? Yeah. Because you get that like lots that, of salt that on that it. That bacon stuff. Ooh. Right? It's like close. Yeah, not but, exactly. Yeah. Are you talking about bacon strips for your no, dog? No. There's like, there's bacon <laughs> you can buy. It look It's it's not bacon. Faux bacon. But they try to okay. tell you it's bacon, right? It doesn't it doesn't cook like bacon. A thick out of bacon. And you get it and it's just like this weird block of meat like product. Huh. And you're like, well, there's sort of a bacony sort of flavor, but it doesn't it's kind of off. Yeah. And I'm wondering if this sort of has an off sort of flavor of bacon to it. You know what? I'll try it. Sure. Because it could be awesome. It could taste just like bacon, even though it's seaweed. And then you can tell your wife, who probably is an advocate of kale. Yeah. That this would be a better option than kale. What about an entire salad of something that tastes like bacon? Boy, that's a lot of bacon. Though. Without the cholesterol of bacon. But really, what is the taste of bacon? It's fat and salt, isn't it? Basically, yeah. Well, heaven. 
So seaweed would be salty, but what would give it the fatty taste? I'm not sure. And do you have to dab it with a paper towel before you eat it? Mm. These are important things to know. Just put that on your hamburger. And does it look like spinach once you cook it? And I'm sure it doesn't have the texture of bacon because there's something satisfying biting into a good crispy slice of bacon. But have you ever had that conversation? You probably haven't yet, Cole, um, with your kids where where everyone's sitting around the table and you say – and they're all like, so where did this come from? Yeah. And you're like, well, we slaughtered a pig to eat this, kids. (laughs) Just keep shoveling it in your faces. But now it would be like we just – we just scooped it up out of the ocean. My son had a class assignment. What are you thankful for? He goes, I'm thankful for turkey. Not Aww. the animal, the food. Oh. And I went, um, do you realize where we get the food, turkey? <laughs> and he's like, well, from the store. And I go, well, no, it comes from a turkey. Like an actual animal was once alive. And yeah. then we, my wife's like, you're going to ruin this kid yeah, for eating are. food. And I'm like, so I just go all in. I pull some beef out of the freezer. I go, beef, where does beef come from? He goes, the freezer. No, it's a cow. And he goes, what? And I pull oh, wow. ham out no. of the fridge and chicken out of the you're fridge. You're creating a vegan. No, no it's I'm like just... orange and orange. They just happen right. to have the same name, yeah. the color and the fruit. That's exactly Turkey right, and Cole. turkey, yeah. it, one's a food, one's an animal. In his mind, he goes, fine. it's the food, not the animal. Cole's going to be a great father. I call my kid a turkey. Do you? He says it's okay only at Thanksgiving. Um, you know what you got to do is show him that um, Fox News show clip mm. where um, the governor of uh, Alaska, oh, Sarah Palin, the former governor, is yeah. is standing in front of a turkey harvester. Talk, she's talking about pardoning turkeys as the guy behind her is continuing his job of <laughs> harvesting turkeys. <laughs> <laughs> show him that one. Oh. It's amazing. It's hard to raise kids. I like this idea. Uh, I don't like the idea because I just, I mean, I don't like part of the idea because I just read the fact that there's all of these al- algae blooms that are growing mm-hmm. in um, lakes and in tributaries. Lakes and, and, and they're yeah. poisonous and killing dogs if the dogs swim into it. And then the next thing you know, you bring up a red algae. Right. They're finding a way to repurpose the algae bloom, which isn't what this is. But yeah, I understand where you're going with this. Yeah. So I'm still trying to admit, I mean, I'm, and, I, and by the way, I've still got the false religion virus in my head. False religion virus. Yeah. A religious virus. Sorry. What do you think that is? I don't know. Could it be FRV benefit or could it be helped by algae that tastes like bacon? No. Seaweed flavored. No. Bacon goodness. No. All right. Just a bit of city, seaweed bacon. Yum. Yum. Hey, uh, did you hear that? Okay, so if you if you're just walking down the street, let's say, okay, and you hear a woman screaming, yes, what would go through your mind? Um, I would possibly look and go, hmm, is there something would going you be on? Startled, here? like, hey, I better, yeah, I gotta save somebody. It here. would depend on the urgency of the scream, like urgent, help, yeah. help. Right. Okay, yeah, help. Uh, that's that's a cry for help. Yes, yeah. that would be someone needing maybe some help. Well, that happened to a delivery man in Oregon hmm. who heard a woman scream for help, and he had his wife call nine one one. But when a deputy showed up, it turned out that the screamer was a parrot, not the woman, not a woman. Interesting. By the way, probably a parrot that lives with a woman yeah. who's in trouble. Because where else would the parrot learn that? Uh, the Oregonian reported Tuesday that when the sheriff's deputy Hayden Sanders showed up, all he found was Diego the parrot. Diego. Mm-hmm. The green and yellow bird was in good health and no humans were involved. Help! Now, my question. Yeah. The delivery driver mm-hmm. said he called his wife. Yeah. To have her call 911. Yeah. 
why didn't he just call 911? Well, because his hands may have been full, like helping a, a female that was being attacked or whatever. He didn't know what he was in for, so he just probably texted his wife, call 911, send him this address. I'm going to go in and save a lady later to find hmm. out it was just a parrot. My, <laughs> just seems like maybe you kept out the middleman and just make the phone call yourself. Yeah, but it'd be terrifying. You don't know what you're walking into. Correct. You could be. But it's okay. No, right. Because you're a delivery guy. And they yeah. train you for these things. Mm-hmm. Maybe he was delivering crackers and it was all a ploy ah. by the parrot wow. to get him to come in. He had parrot food. So Polly can get the cracker. His name's Diego. Oh, Diego. Can Not Polly. My bad. It's Diego. Um, <laughs> that ruins that theory. <laughs> totally does. Wow. Totally does. And by the way, a new uh, sports league is appearing, which we've talked about before on the show. We have. I think, but it's, I guess it's now being formalized. And this might be more in a, a different intensification yeah. of what we had previously covered. And of course, where else would they do this but in the Pacific Northwest? Right. Uh, to me, I don't, it just seems like so apropos. Uh, it's best described as full contact, mixed martial arts style combat. Hmm. So it's, it's MMA with swords and axes. Yeah. So no. you're dressed up like a medieval, you know, warrior, like a... You know, like one of the knights in shining armor. Now, but, we've covered it's a, a knight um, combat league, I think, yeah. medieval combat league, something like that. Where And, and we've had guys in like a, uh, a boxing ring, yeah, wrestling ring type right. thing where they're just wailing on each other with hammers or swords or whatever their weapon is. And then we've also had where they have teams of like 20 guys oh, on each yeah. side and they run at each that other. That's our favorite. Everyone's falling down. They're taking uh, body blows and stuff. This being MMA... I think this takes it to a new level. Well, and, and be careful because they're not like Renaissance fair people. They're not reenacting the Renaissance. No, 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 no. They're here just to battle. Yeah. And, you know, under the theme, a night to remember. <laughs> Boy, that night. Yeah, it was great. Do you remember anything about that night? No, I just remember he hit me in the head with yeah. his... I got this scar on the side of my head now. What is it, a cudgel? <laughs> and I woke up and the, my helmet was on backwards. Wow. Yeah. So it's uh, it's called the Armored Combat League. And in Sacramento, they've got one. Seattle, they've got a, 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 a chapter. Right now, there's only about five members, though. Well, yeah. But if you're into, if you're into MMA, but you don't want to just be standing around, running around in your boxers, yeah. then you, you you can put on the full armor and go out and, and, and really go to battle. Swing a battle axe if you want. Well, I don't know if she needs to come. but Okay. Um, <laughs> anyway, it's probably the most violence the average person will probably experience up close. Oh, wow. Wow. Is that a good way to sell this? Yeah. It's a interesting marketing a, uh, approach there. I... The most violence you'll experience up close. Is really? that for the, the people watching or people participating? Apparently both. I think oh. they're selling to get some more participants than yeah. five. Yeah. Well, that's so what, up close. Is, well, <laughs> they mean up close. <laughs> I think that's the problem is you can't sell it that way because nobody wants to do that. That's why there's only five people in the charter. Uh, there's you, probably a high rate of injury. Well, what, yeah, you probably shouldn't sell that. You just ought to say, hey, have you ever wanted to be a knight in shining, shining armor? Hmm. Sign up. And, and then we'll that, give you – you want to go to fight someone? We'll give you all this yeah. armor. You'll be fine. Oh, you'll be fine. You'll hmm. be fine. Did you bring a cudgel? Yes, it's, I did. It sounds um, problematic when it comes to, say, insurance claims. Well, what, yeah. What you ought to do, though, is if you just offered free insurance, you'd probably double your membership. That's crazy. 
I mean, I remember watching. I remember when I couldn't stomach mixed martial arts, mm-hmm. and now boxing is like boring. Yeah, you're like, don't well, you think like, stand, well, why don't you kick him? What are you doing? You're what? standing right there. You could kick him right there. <laughs> Just get him in a whatever. Put him that? in a sleeper. You got him. Yeah, little arm bar. Do it. Poke Nobody's even out. kicking at the kidney. Kick him in the kidney. Yeah, it's kidneys wide open. They don't even try. <laughs> Those were the days. Remember when it was just boxing? That was it. Even wrestling was too boring for people to watch. Yeah. I mean, like, that's why we didn't have, like... like the Greco-Roman, the then, actual Then they had wrestling. to turn into all-star wrestling. Yeah. You but now you got mixed martial tables. arts and everything else. But apparently, now there's a run for it. Uh, Armored Combat League. Uh, by the way... I don't... The ACL. Yeah. <laughs> Not only is it the name of the league, it's also the first part of your body that will go. The most common injury <laughs> in our ACL. league, the ACL. <laughs> oh, sad stuff. See, but this is the information you don't get on any other station because we care about you. We love you that much. Up next, we're going to be replaying an interview uh, talking about why English is so difficult to learn. It might be all about spelling. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Some of the most difficult languages to learn include Chinese, Finnish, and Arabic. Although English isn't on the list, it is still no cakewalk to learn. Languages can become difficult to learn for grammatical reasons because of colloquial terms and accents. The English Spelling Society, however, argues that it is in fact spelling that makes English a challenge to learn. A few months ago, I spoke with Stephen Lindstedt, chairman and honorary treasurer for the English Spelling Society. I began the interview asking about the unique view that the English language is tough to to learn because of all the rules around spelling. Yes, English is not a difficult language to learn in terms of its grammar and syntax or punctuation. It's a lot more regular than many other languages in the world. But English does have this particular uh, burden to bear, which is its very irregular spelling system. And it's probably the most irregular spelling system of all spelling systems based on the alphabetic principle. And the reason for that is uh, largely historical. But the reason why English stands out as being so irregular is that not merely can you not tell how to spell a word from hearing it pronounced, but you don't always know how to pronounce a a strange word from seeing it spelt out in writing. And that is a kind of double whammy, which uh, English... Uh, does not share with most other languages, even though some other languages are not all that regular, like French or Portuguese. But English really comes to the bottom of the list in terms of regularity. Is it, and you're saying it's, it's based on the history. Um, talk about the history of the English language. What, is that why there are so many different, um, different just sounds and, and ways to spell those sounds? Yes, I mean, it is a complex story, it's a complex history. And the, right at the base, you have um, Norman French um, dovetailed onto uh, Anglo-Saxon Old English, and two different spelling conventions uh, all mixed up with no real rules for telling which rule applies. Then you get to the 15th century, by which time English has uh, established itself as the official language again, um, not written down with any degree of regularity by the clerks of the time. Then you get Caxton's printers, who were Dutch, who didn't understand English <laughs> very well. Then you add to that the great 
uh, vowel glide of the 16th century where the sounds of a lot of vowels changed. Unfortunately, the spelling of them didn't. Oh, wow. And then finally you get the early lexicographers of the um, 17th and 18th centuries who were not really interested in the phonetic principle at all. Um, and Dr. Johnson uh, was very great in many other ways, almost delighted in creating different ways of spelling the same sound. Ugh. I don't like and him. It's not changed very much since the 18th century. Yeah. The English language has, but the spelling hasn't. Well, and so it really is, it sounds like, with all of these differences, it really is just the memorization of rules. Well, or not even a rule, most, really. It's just the memorization of a, a certain use. Yes. I mean, with most languages, um, and you, you said earlier on before I joined you that um, Finnish was an easy language to spell although it's a difficult language to learn. Yes, it, it is a difficult language to learn. It's not an Indo-European language, but it does have a very phonetic um, spelling system. So languages that are maybe quite difficult for an English-speaking person to learn uh, may be much easier to spell than English itself. Hmm. So really the language, the ability to kind of access the language is, is very much rooted and based in the ease of the spelling. Well, spelling is a factor. Um, as I said before, English is regular, quite regular in terms of its grammar and its punctuation. If you learn the rules of English grammar and uh, punctuation, you ought to be able to apply them. But you, you, there, there are rules uh, underlying English spelling. Uh, one of them is the doubling rule, for example, and the magic E. But the trouble is that English doesn't obey its spelling rules <laughs> with enormous frequency. So you have to learn when the rule applies and when the rule is not being applied. And so, in addition to learning the kind of phonic rules representation, you have to learn a great number of irregular words, and you just have to memorize them. Oh, wow. Is, um, when you think about it, I mean, I guess in European languages, uh, does English stand out? Is it different than Spanish? Like, I'm fluent in Spanish, and I feel, um, I feel like Spanish seemed to have fewer rules than the English language. Spanish, the, um, Spanish is a fairly easy language to learn. I don't speak Spanish very well, but it's, um, the, the rules of Spanish grammar are quite easy. And the thing about Spanish, it's a very uh, phonetic um, spelling. Uh, if you hear, if you see something written in Spanish, you almost automatically know how mm -hmm. to pronounce it. And quite often, if you hear the word pronounced, you've got a good idea how it's spelled. So Spanish um, is, um, has that advantage over English of its highly regular spelling. In fact, Spanish, along with languages like Italian and, and Finnish, come at the high end of um, what we would call phonemicity hmm. in relationship to the spoken word. One of the things that we found in um, this article, How Spelling Keeps Kids from Learning, it was in The Atlantic, and it referenced yeah. uh, a book by Masha Bell, who's the vice chair okay. there. And w w one of the keys, I guess, to this is that um, she, she quoted or is uh, – I don't know um, if Masha is a male or a female, but they quoted um, that they had analyzed in a study in your organization 7,000 of the most common English words and found that 60 percent of them had one or more predictably – unpredictably used letters. So 60 percent of our most common words have some deviation <laughs> from the norm. You can argue about this uh, till kingdom come. I mean, exactly what is an irregularity and how frequently it comes. I mean, the, 
the, the estimates range. My estimate, which is a conservative one, is about 30 to 40 percent mm. of words in the English language have got some degree of irregularity or uh, unpredictability. Other, others would um, put it higher than that. The real question is, to what extent does this irregularity make it difficult for children and for students of English as a second language to, to learn the language? And how diffi what difficulties does it cause uh, for adults in, a in an age where, we, um, where literacy is very important? Hmm. And, and so um, it, it is – you do see – that it, it impacts maybe to some degree the child's ability to learn it. Plus, uh, age, uh, I'm, I'm reading in the article, age may also be impacting it where some of the skills to sort through these deviations and these, these differences in the English spelling um, might not even be uh, available to the, to the child until they're, until they're older, until they're in middle school. Yeah, um... Clearly, I mean, there are all kinds of factors in the level of literacy in, in a country. There is the amount spent on education, the, um, the organization of education, and the teaching methods. But I think one of the factors which has been rather poo-pooed up to now is the um, influence of irregular spelling in a particular language. And there is now some concrete proof that English, the regularity of English spelling does have a, a quantifiable effect. There was a study done in 2001-2002 by Seymour um, in the United Kingdom, and that showed that English-speaking children, compared with those in 12 European countries, took up to two years longer to master basic spelling compared with, with the other kids. So um, that does represent an awful lot of teaching time and um, an awful lot of extra effort for kids. In fact, uh, a member of my society in the States who joined recently said that what he found so frustrating about English spelling was it sucked the joy out of early education for children. <laughs> it's so true. That's true, though. I, I, totally, I totally feel that. And, um, but it's cause, – yeah, because it's so, it's so much to learn. I know that you have some profound insight into how we should be teaching spelling and, and how we might even reform some of our spelling um, issues. And again, too, technology seems to be changing it. I have a son that writes us letters. He lives away. And uh, man, thank heavens for spell check because it's correcting <laughs> everything he does. Talk to us about um, – we know it's difficult and the history is interesting, too. Uh, from the Norman, French, and Old English to the Dutch printers that maybe didn't even understand what they were changing to the vowel glide changes. The English language has been uh, – it's kind of gone through the ringer. And um, talk about what you see maybe we could do to teach it more effectively or – and uh, any ref reformation or what, what we would do to make it easier to learn. I, as I said uh, before the break, um, I'm not pretending that changing English spelling would be a magic bullet that uh, led us to instant literacy. I mean, we agonize about uh, adult illiteracy in the United States and in the United Kingdom, and it is really a serious problem because we know how much the lack of functional literacy uh, is associated with social deprivation and crime. So illiteracy really is, is a, a major problem. The amount spent on education, educational methods, uh, obviously are important. I would say that you know, if you're a parent with a kid who is um, having problems with spelling, um, don't assume he's thick, he or she mm. is thick. Um, there is a genuine problem there. Um, 
the uh, certainly in Britain, and I think in the United States, synthetic phonics is regarded as the latest and most effective way of coping with teaching kids spelling. Um, I wouldn't wish to denigrate it in any way, but there have been a number of sources, including our Ofsted um, inspectorate in, in the United Kingdom, which is, don't rely on uh, uh, synthetic phonics alone. It's not necessarily a panacea for everything. Different kids um, learn to spell in different ways. So I think um, all children you know, need parental encouragement, but they need to uh, learn to spell in the way that's best for them, and it may not always be the method that they're being taught at school. Mm. Um, spelling, changing the spelling, well, that's been our long-term objective um, in the Spelling Society. We were, we were founded in 1908, and to be quite honest, we haven't got very far with it since then. Um, changing spelling is always problematical in any language. Uh, it is always resisted. And with English, we don't have the equivalent of the Académie Française or the Real Academia to lay down rules and changes and things like that. Um, my society is, has a plan, a project for trying to go about it in a slightly different manner. And we're hoping to try and raise funds for an International English Spelling Congress, uh, which would uh, take in delegates basically from all over the English-speaking world uh, there would be a great deal of market research as to what was or was not acceptable. And the, they would appoint a commission which drew up a short list of alternative spelling systems. And the reconvened Congress would then choose between them. Uh, we're not suggesting any kind of top-down uh, imposition from governments. Governments aren't interested. There are no votes in spelling change. Right. But hopefully if one had an alternative system which was widely acceptable upon those who are at least benevolently neutral on, on spelling reform, then the hope is that gradually this would run alongside traditional spelling and might eventually take over from it. That's the kind of vision thing mm. that we have at the moment. Well, and, and um, I guess kind of while you're working on that side of it and you know pushing, I guess, even from the more educational side and the governmental side, um, mm. it, parents, like you were saying, we can go – we can be a bigger part of – helping our children figure out how they learn, what's the best way that they like to learn. I love on your website at spellingsociety.org, you have an area for the kids called the Kids' Corner and a guide to English speaking. There's so many different tools and rules that are available and people can just come and and learn. Yeah. Well, that's what we we try to do. Every child is different, and um, it it isn't true that um, all one size fits all. I think all, unless your child is absolutely brilliant at memorizing irregular words, they're going to have some difficulty with, with spelling. And what the, the parent needs to do is to try and find what helps most. Yeah. But I would say to all parents, do open your mind just a little bit uh, and just think whether it may not be the case that our irregular spelling is having some effect mm-hmm. on the problems your, your kid has. No, I, and I, it's interesting. I didn't. My mind wasn't open to that, and it is now. When I just look at your research on your site, it's unbelievable. And like you said, don't think your child is thick. Don't think they're they're stupid that they can't get this. Absolutely it's they're not. just different. They 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 yeah. access it differently. Yeah, the one story about the the the, um, the perils of try- governments trying to impose spelling change, of course, is dear old Teddy Roosevelt who tried to change uh, American spellings at the beginning of the 20th century and was brought up to a very abrupt halt by the House of Representatives. I think that's a, a lesson in how not to go about uh, yeah. spelling reform. Yeah, that's why it's probably, like you're saying, better not to make it political, huh? Just 
just make it uh, show the success of it. That's how I think yep. this would fly. Is if I could just see how I could help my children. <laughs> well, we appreciate well, we'll see you. If we got our Congress off the ground. Oh yeah, I mean, you've seen what's going on in our election here. Can you imagine if we got into a spelling debate in the middle of it? Well, I try to keep politicians out of spelling reform because they either don't, are not interested or they take delight in saying how uh, appalling any prospect of spelling ah, reform is. Sure. Yeah. And that uh, that doesn't. Uh, I'm not not aimed at any candidate or any party. Right, right. Or averse to spelling reform. But if it could help one or two children, you know, or one or two percent to learn better, and and if we just looked at it more um, directly, I think I think we will see that there's a lot of benefit by by understanding it. Uh, Steve, open-mindedness is what I'm asking. Yeah, Stephen Lindstedt's his name. Go check out the website spellingsociety.org. Wonderful uh, site for parents. Go, you can go under uh, the section under spelling or for kids. There's a kids corner, and you could learn the guide to English spelling. Lots of wonderful rules and tools for you there. Lots of fun. Still ahead, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, there are uh, there's many things we need, right? You, you need to get through uh, your English lessons so you can speak the language uh, of life, but you also um, need to, to have friends. And so Terry's found a really interesting article um, about the, the types of friends that you need if you want to be happy in life. A few months back, we had a man by the name of Eric Barker on the show. He runs a, a website called Barking Up the Wrong Tree. Yeah. And the idea is that you're barking up the wrong tree with the wrong advice. Here's some some advice. And he goes out and finds research and advice, writes about it, and gives you, gives you kind of his spin on it. And it's interesting. This one's from the people that do the Gallup polling. They, they uh, went around and asked a bunch of people. Yeah. What are the qualifications? What kind of friends do you have? What kind of uh, characteristics in your friends do you like? What in a, they, they, they took all that information and found that there are eight types of friends okay. that you need to support your life. Oh, excellent. So the first one is the builder. Right? Okay. It says, so what do they do? The builders are great motivators, always pushing you towards the finish line. Mm. That kind of person. Kind Always of pushing you to do more, be more. Encouraging you. Build more, okay. He goes, the second one is the champion. Champions stand up for you and what you believe in. They're the friends who sing your praises every day. This makes a difference in your life. So they're kind of the cheerleader, yeah. right? everybody needs a cheerleader. The third one is collaborator. So they're the friend with similar interests, the basis for many great friendships. You might share a passion for sports, hobbies, religion, work, politics, food, music, movies, or books. In many cases, you belong to the same groups. Or share the same affiliations, mm. right? So they're the ones like, hey, let's go do this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Same kind of idea. It gets you doing stuff, active. The fourth is the companion. They're uh, always there for you, whatever the circumstances. You share a bond that's virtually unbreakable. When something big happens in your life, good or bad, this is one of the first people you call. Ah, there you go. That type of friend. The fifth is the connector. A connector is a bridge builder who helps you get what you need. They connect. They connectors get to know you and then introduce you to others. So it's interesting. You may have three or four of these, but not have a connector. No. So you don't know how to meet new people, or you don't. Then you meet that one connector, and all you seem to do is have all these new friends. 
or one friend could be multiple of these. Yeah, that's cool. At the same time. Six is the Energizer. They are your uh, your fun friends who always give you a boost. You have more positive moments when you're with these friends. Energizers are quick to pick you up when you're down and can make a good day great. But they're the ones, too, that you sometimes you just need to drop off early. Personally, I think this person would annoy me. Yeah, they're the first ones. It's too much. <laughs> After dinner, they're the first one you want to get home. Seven is the mind opener. Mind openers are the friend who expand your horizons and encourage you to embrace new ideas, opportunities, cultures, and people. Mm. Probably the one that will like share a link with you and go, this was so interesting. I needed to Have share you this thought with of you. This? Yeah. And uh, eight is the navigator. Navigators are the friends who give you advice and keep you headed in the right direction. You go to them when you need guidance. They talk you through pros and cons with you until you find an answer. Well, see, this is really interesting, Terry, because uh, you're, you seem like the kind of guy that would really rather not have a friend. Yeah, that was my thought when I saw this. I'm like, ah, this sounds like a lot of work. Or, or let's say hypothetically, <laughs> I only have two friends. Yeah, hypothetically. Right. Because that's yeah, Hypothetically. Not yeah. Could each take like four of those roles and I'd be right. fine? It says, uh, it goes on in here and talks about how uh, these are, what they're there, but one person could have multiple roles. Okay, good. Right, so I look at this like... A champion, mind-opening connector. Right. Like, I have people I'm acquainted with. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'd call them friends. Like, people you'd call up and say, like, you... A friend to me is someone you have good news, you call them and share the good news. Mm -hmm. Hey, guess what just happened? I have a very small number of those people. One of them being my wife. Right. Right? Yeah. We were so much... And even that's questionable. And then it's questionable if I want to share that. Yeah. Uh, So you got the builder... He goes, they're, they're, if you're on a sports team, they'd be the coach. Yeah. Right? You have the champion, pom-poms, not yeah, included. The uh, collaborator, the uh, the unintended co-conspirator, as it yeah. says. Uh, the companion, they'd be at the police station at 3 a.m. with bail money. Oh, that's nice. Again. Yeah, that's right? nice. That kind of person. Yeah, those are good people. Uh, again, all those, my wife. I'm like my wife, the connector, not really a connector, yeah. which I appreciate because, you know, we're going to end up in all these parties for no reason. Just yeah. To, yeah, whatever. The energizer. I appreciate she's kind of lower energy. She's not just bouncing off the ceiling yeah, all yeah. the time. I like yeah. that. Mind opener. She shares stuff with me that I go, sure. wow, look at that. We Never talk about that. Things. And a navigator, like a high school guidance counselor, except useful. Oh, yeah. Plus, you get to take her home. Again, my wife fills out almost probably, what, six of the eight here. So yeah. I need to find one person to fill two slots, and I'm set. Apparently, I'm happy for no, life. I, okay, that's good for you, but yeah. I, it's it's your wife I worry about. She's going to be overly she's, burdened well, with and She's uh, maybe me. been shortchanged. I don't know. I'm kind of needy, apparently, in this situation. Because <laughs> you, you do bring energy, and you are kind of a navigator. Sort of. And then it's over, other than yeah, that. Yeah, it's it. It's kind of like, kind of, I'm I don't bring so much to the table. But you show. do the trees. Yeah, I'll, yeah. You're in the yard a lot. I'll go out and fix the yard and mow the lawn. And I, I, on the after Thanksgiving, I drag the Christmas tree upstairs from the basement. Oh, see? You're the muscle. Now, she could do it. Yeah, no. She's plenty yeah. strong enough. Oh, but for sure. I help out because she'd like me to do my part. And then I go down and watch TV while they decorate yeah. and do Christmas. Well, they didn't have the one that you, you're like the Netflixer. The Netflixer? That's mm-hmm. a good friend. Yeah. I'm the guy that's like, did you watch that yesterday? You've got to see this one. Yeah. It's a good one. Well, that's great. Uh, the article is in uh, Becca. Look up. Baca Desuyo. That's short for barking up the wrong tree. So okay. look up barking up the wrong tree. Eric Barker, it was his uh, email this week. It's great article. Eight, uh, what's it titled? It says, uh, the, these are the eight friends you need to be happy in life. Good stuff. Straight ahead, McKenna Baus is going to do a little mind bender with us. She's going to blow our minds. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio.
give it up now for the House of Bows. Welcome to McKenna Bows in the studio. And McKenna has been, uh, she likes to blow our minds a bit. Uh, today she's going to blow it about Black Friday. You bring up a great, a great question, I know, uh, that, that this is all based on. Why? Why do people do it? It's a good question. And normally I think most of us assume it's because of the deals. And that's yeah. probably why I go Black Friday shopping. You do it. Sometimes. Yeah. Because, you know, oh, it's cheap. You know, I'm going to save money. But when you're looking at most people, especially people who are lining up in those lines overnight, the ones that you know are on the news, yeah. they're usually not there for the deals. They're there, I think they're there for the fight. The fight might be part of it. A lot of it has to do with tradition and community. Oh, really? Okay. So one of the things, and this ties into the same reason that a lot of families go and watch movies at the theater on Thanksgiving. It's this activity that the whole family can get together and do. And people that you don't necessarily always spend a whole ton of time with, yeah. you know, yeah. extended family that you don't normally socialize with in a lot of amounts can do together, get behind. Let's and all enjoy. go out. Let's all get in a fight at Walmart together. Yeah. A lot of it, people do it because it's what they've always done. Yeah. It very much has this sense of tradition. And it's they've shown through some studies that the people who are there for the tradition, for the community, because it's what they always do, are a lot less susceptible to buying stuff they don't need. That's and interesting. Yeah. So if you're going to be going to That's the mall. That's a good reason to go. Exactly. If you're going to be going to the mall, make sure you have a list. Make sure you're prepared. Because if you're not there for that atmosphere, it's going to be a million times easier to spend money you didn't mean to See, spend. See, I imagine uh, you know, thousands of years ago, women gathered around the fire on the day after Thanksgiving. This sounds right. And then thinking up a plan for how they were going to go conquer you know, the foraging of foods and berries and nuts. Yeah, it's something instinctual. And so it's been handed down generation after generation, and now they go do it again. Exactly. I like it. It is. It's tribal. It's communal. It really is. Um, Shopping, it's proven to sort of help, at least in the short term, conquer anxiety. Now, I would never do it. I'm not going out on on Black Friday. Yeah, if you don't enjoy that atmosphere, it's better to stay away. Otherwise, you'll spend money you do not mean to spend. And that's where the plague began, you know. That sounds that sounds right. The Black Friday plague. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but you're, you're going to end up maybe doing it. Um, we'll see. This year, I don't know. Again, it's more fun when I've gone with people. Yeah, it's, it's that community the party, kind of thing. Yeah. And so I'll have to. And what does it say friends. about you if you go by yourself? I think then, you're just there for the deals, and yeah. that's when you're in trouble. You're there because you want to shank someone. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very violent. Well, great insight. Uh, so maybe if maybe the people aren't crazy that just do Black Friday, because by the way, you could do it online as well. Exactly. But you would miss the community side. Exactly. There's something about it. There Going is. together with those people you love. Thanks, McKenna Baus. Baus is in the house blowing our minds and we appreciate it. Uh, we will continue the journey, folks, doing what we can to help your life, uh, you know, to elevate it if we can. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on BYU Radio.